Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways Podcast. We're coming at you with episode 83. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button uh, so that you can get everything coming out from Almost Sideways and so more people can find us. Uh, I'm your host, Terry Plecknett. As always, joining me are Todd Plecknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, guys, how's it going? It's going. I have some big breaking news to report on the Almost Sideways podcast. So, oh, breaking news. Breaking news. It is the half-off Criterion sale at Barnes & Noble, and I wanted to share some of, some of my, um, shall we say, uncut gems that I spent a considerable investment on. Maybe not as much as Howard did, but uh, I did find the now-out-of-print Blu-ray for Sallow or the 120 Days of Sodom, a movie I signed to Todd not too long ago. This movie is now wow. out of print, so if you're in an educated place like Seattle or Portland or New York City, the Diamond District, you're probably not going to find it. But Frank, fortunately, I live in dumb f middle of the country, Kansas and Missouri. So they didn't realize this is out of print. So uh, I got me a copy. And then, uh, you know, it does, the, the fun does not end there. I also decided to splurge and get the Bergman box set. Holy cow. Which uh, is the, probably the most expensive thing I've ever actually purchased. Um, I did get it half off. So maybe it's not the most expensive. But uh, yeah, it's like hefty. You can do some wait lists with it. Um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful um, artwork. So I'm considering the, where, the functionality where it goes in my house. But uh, yeah, there goes my July paycheck. Nice. How many films are in that uh, that box set there? Uh, good question. I believe it's thirty six. Oh, no, thirty nine. Thirty nine. What's on your Mount me. Rushmore of Igmar? Mount Rushmore of Igmar. Uh, oh, nice impromptu. Well, the Seventh Seal, obviously, Fanny and Alexander, um, Persona, and then and then the controversial choice I'm going to go with is is Cries and Whispers because that's a great one. I like Cries and Whispers a lot too. I don't think I've seen an, a single uh, Bergman film. Oh, you're missing out. Well, come come over to Kansas and you can watch all 39 of them. We'll, 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 there we uh, go. We'll watch it at the film festival. Let's do it. I, 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 my vote is that that goes on the bookshelf right over your uh, left shoulder there. Yeah. Actually, Terry, I really want to watch Sallow with you. Don't you think Sallow is a Terry movie, Todd? Um, I'm not sure what kind of a Terry movie, but I'm going to say yes. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Well, I, I'm glad you were able to get something. I broke the news to you that there was the 50% off sale, so I'm glad that you are breaking it to everybody else. Yes. And it's been a long time since we've had a, uh, a Zach Saltz um, reveal of what he just bought of his random art house films. It's been a long time since Adam Daly Live and, you know, the Red and Brown podcast. If I, yeah, if I yeah. developed COVID because I went into this stupid bum f Independence, Missouri, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble, it will probably still be worth it. Odds are. Odds are. Because I had to go inside it. to pick it up, sadly. I'll take, I'll take the money on that. Couldn't you have just ordered it and then had them <laughs> ship it to you? No, that's exactly what I said, man. You cannot find Sallow anywhere online. It is officially out of print. This store was, so, was stupid enough to keep it on their shelf. Well, I know, but wouldn't they have it on their online catalog, too? You can't find it online. It's nowhere. Look, look online. You can't find it. That is, it is a rare uncut gem of a movie. 
How did I watch it? Did <laughs> Netflix must have had it or something? <laughs> it just it just went out of print. I mean, you can you can find it streaming pretty much anywhere, but the but the Criterion Blu-ray is now officially unofficially out of print. Well, uh, Zach, why don't you tell us what you're drinking? Oh well, since I'm broke, I'm drinking a uh, uh, Smirnoff Ice. That's all I really have today. I gotta that preserve looks like my orange mind. Orange juice. It <laughs> might actually be orange juice mixed with piss. <laughs> Todd, what do you got? I got the Camarina tequila. It's Reposado. It is not bad. It's tequila, so this will be fun. Nice, nice. I have, uh, I went and got a, um, well, I didn't. My wife went and got a, a growler filled, uh, while I, uh, while I helped my daughter take a nap today. But, um, I was gonna get, I, there was a, a beer I really wanted to have on the podcast that was called Star Thirst. That was a, that was a hazy that was, uh, brewed with Starburst. It was really, really good. I've had it once before. But they were all out, so I had to go with something else. So this is out of the Von Ebert Brewery in Portland. It's the Sector 7 Hazy IPA, and uh, it's pretty good. It's, uh, it's definitely, it's got a little citrus hints to it, but uh, it's, uh, it's also, it's like 7.1% too, so, I mean, it, it's, it's refreshing, yet, you know, you know you're drinking something, so. Did you say the, the Ebert uh, Brewery Company? It was uh, Von Ebert in Portland. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. How have I never been there? Jeez. I don't know. It looks like their logo is like a hedgehog. <laughs> that would be appropriate. Or warthog. Yeah. Anyway, no, warthog. Warthog. Not hedgehog. Warthog. Not the cheese. Um, not the cheese. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we're, we have a review for you guys today. We have a, a deep dive of a more recent movie. That's kind of celebrating an anniversary that we're just kind of making up so we can talk about it today. Um, but first, uh, Todd, what have you been watching? Uh, so, earlier today I watched the 2019 movie Clemency, which uh, I had been wanting to watch since uh, it came out in December, but I never got a chance to. Just missed out on an Oscar nomination. It's about this uh, prison warden who oversees capital punishments, and she sort of uh, develops... Uh, sort of a rapport with one of the prisoners uh the warden's played by alfrey woodard she's awesome it's not a great movie it's kind of like uh like, like just mercy was more about the plot this is more about like the psychology of it and it, it's decent it's, it's a little boring but uh if you want to see a great performance alfrey woodard is uh the real deal it's like two and a half stars yeah wasn't she the front runner for your best actress for a while for your last year's yeah. predictions yeah going into award season yeah she was uh she was right at the top but Unfortunately, no one really saw it. It came out, like, December, like, 27th, and I, I don't think it really ever got any traction. It was a first-time director, I think. Yeah, it, and it was released really late, and not many people saw it before uh, before award season happened, which probably didn't help it much either. But, uh, yeah, it's it's good to hear it had some decent performances in it. Yeah, and it also had, it randomly has uh, Mr. Belding and Dennis Haskins in there, which uh, that was fun to see. <laughs> nice, nice. Alfred right, well, uh, Woodard is a really good actor, though. Like everything she's been in, she's I feel like she's long overdue for Oscar recognition. Even though she was nominated for Cross Creek, a really random movie that I know you've seen, Todd. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in this, it's like they went with like the next best thing to Viola Davis that they could find, and, and that's Alfred Woodard for sure. All right. 
Well, I'm going to go next. Uh, I'm uh, This week, I didn't watch too many movies, but when I did watch, I got my anniversary movie in for the week. And that was uh, all the way back to 1990. This movie received one Oscar nomination for Best Actress. And that actress was uh, Joanne Woodward, and the film is Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, a uh, Merchant choice. and Ivory film. Uh, Paul Newman and, um, and Joanne Woodward play the titular characters, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, and it's about uh, their life in uh, upper-class society and their three children, uh, played by Margaret Welsh, Kira Sedgwick, and Robert Sean Leonard who all kind of rebel from the family in different ways, from the uh, stern taskmaster of a father and the kind of clueless, searching-for-herself uh, mother. Uh, you have a, a really interesting performance here by Blythe Danner with, uh, as a friend to, uh, to Mrs. Bridge. Um, and then it's fun to just see some of, some other random faces, like Simon Callow always seems to pop up in random stuff, and he was in here. Uh, but the most random one, I have to say was Austin Pendleton as Mr. Gadbury. He was uh, Mrs. Bridges' art teacher and then later on tried to sell her a, uh, a magazine about Dobermans. Uh, the reason I bring him up is because uh, he's come up once before on this podcast, and that was... Beautiful Mind. Uh, it, yeah, it was Zach's choice as the highest war performance from A Beautiful Mind as the guy from the Nobel Prize uh, <laughs> committee that came to, get, to let John Nash know that he was getting... Uh, getting the Nobel Prize. So, um, yeah, I thought that was kind of funny that he just randomly pops up here. Uh, it, it's a pretty good movie. It had me pretty well engaged. Paul Newman, I thought, was much more interesting than Joanne Woodward in this um, as he was just kind of cold and calculating and trying to figure out what was going on at the same time. Um, it would have been a three-star movie if it hadn't had, like, the worst ending, like, ever in a movie where it's, like, going through something. It's like, okay, this is kind of... This is kind of crazy, and what's really going to happen here? And then it cuts to black and says what happens in, like, an, a little, like, postscript. It's like, this is how that all turned out while they're showing family footage. It was really stupid, and I, I hated the ending. So two and a half stars for me. Worst ending ever in a movie. That is hot take, Terry. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like, okay, we're going to have this big climactic moment, and then they cut and have the climactic moment as a, as a post-scene little subscript, and then go to the credits. That's, that, it was, it was horrible. So you've hit a nerve with me, Terry. I love this movie. This is in my top five of 1990. I love it so much that I actually read both books upon it. By, uh, it's based uh, by Evan S. Connell. There's a Mr. Bridge book and a, and a Mrs. Bridge book. The Mrs. Bridge book is much better. Um, it's it was filmed in Kansas City. It's the most it's the most Robert Altman non Robert Altman movie ever made. Um, so much so that I sometimes forget that it wasn't directed by Robert Altman. And um, yeah, I, I I disagree with you about the ending. I I really like the ending. I like all the characters. I do remember the Austin Pendleton character. This movie also has randomly the best storm sequence maybe ever filmed in a movie, where a random like hailstorm comes in and uh, it's, it's it perfectly captures Midwestern weather in the summertime. I was in the middle of a storm yesterday, actually. So it, it it's beautiful in that respect. Did you finish your dinner before you went to the cellar? Uh, it was not during dinner, but I, I would have finished dinner. <laughs> yes. Go go and steal someone's butter off of another plate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Shout out to Ward Parkway in Kansas City, man. Great, great filming location, too. <clears throat> and and I, I was, like I said, I, I was engaged by it. I thought it was a good movie until the ending just 
had me scratching my head. I didn't understand why that was the choice that was made with the ending at all. And that that ruined everything else for me. So, there you go. All right, Zach, what did you watch? Okay, a couple quick things to report on. First thing is I watched the four-part documentary on Hulu called Hillary, which is a look at the life and work of Hillary Rodham Clinton, directed by Nanette Bernstein. Um, I was reluctant to go into this. We are coming upon a presidential election in the fall, the 2016 presidential election. You know, I've lived a very privileged life, so I can pretty much safely say it was the most traumatic, horrible moment of my life. So I really went in with trepidation into this documentary because the, the last part really is about the 20s. Actually, the whole the whole doc, uh, structure of the documentary is, is around the 2016 election. So you're watching it with dread. You're watching it like you watched the first hour of like 1993 because you know a disaster is about to happen. Really good documentary, regardless of what you think about Hillary Clinton. Um, she has had one of the most complex, interesting, unique political uh, public lives of the 20th and early 21st century. I would highly encourage you to watch it you get a lot of like inner looks at how politics work and um, the complexities of trying to balance being um, someone who uh, is a policy wonk um, but also trying to be a populist too and uh, she's uh, amazing I mean I, I, it's unfortunate that she's not our president right now she probably will never be our president but uh, she's a great inspirational figure really awesome documentary I, I encourage everyone to watch it the other movie I watched was a uh, indie movie that has under a thousand views on um, IMDb so it could have qualified for our list. It's called Mickey and the Bear, and it stars Camila Moroni, and she is better known as Al Pacino's stepdaughter and Leonardo DiCaprio's current girlfriend. Um, so, But she's also a good actress in, in her own right. And this is a story that, um, on the surface, really kind of is similar to Leave No Trace, a movie that I've talked about on this podcast, a movie that I love. It's also about um, a teenage girl and her father, who is a pretty seriously traumatized PTSD uh, war veteran. Um, they, they're not homeless in this movie though they live in like a trailer park and um like that movie it's kind of about how this girl who's a couple years crucial years older than the thomas and mckenzie character in Leno trace how she has to kind of negotiate being a caregiver to her pretty damaged father and also coming of age and uh it's a really great performance by camila maroney um i hope she makes more movies and is not just known for being leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend um a really well done movie solid three and a half stars i encourage it as a really nice kind of companion piece to leave no trace with a little bit of a lighter tone um a little bit more mature in some ways too um but really good indie movie under a thousand votes let's get it above a thousand votes okay people come on let's go director by the way written and directed by a 26 year old named annabella atanzio or atanasio so cool cool stuff there all right all right have either of you ever heard of that film mickey and the bear it's on canopy right now nope haven't heard I've of seen it. the title but that's it really good movie check it out all right well let's hop into our uh, our featured review for the day and we're going to be looking at the uh the brand new film just came out uh streaming on hulu exclusively and that is palm springs it's gonna be a beautiful wedding good day so far today tomorrow it's all the same you what is going on hey get out of the water guess you followed me it's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about that i might have heard about yeah uh, Palm Springs, written by Andy Ciara, directed by Max Bar- Barbacow. Uh, I think it was his directorial debut as well. Uh, this film stars Andy Samberg, Kristen Milioti, and J.K. Simmons. And uh, I didn't know much about this movie going in. All I had really heard was it is a Groundhog Day-esque type of film. 
Uh, and, and that's really all you need to know going in. Uh, you have Andy Samberg, who you discover very early on is reliving the same day over and over and over again, which is the day that he went to, uh, he was kind of a reluctant guest at, uh, his, uh, soon to be ex-girlfriend's friend's wedding. And, uh, and he meets, uh, Chris Emiliati there, who is the, uh, maid of honor, the sister to the, to the bride. And, um, and you find out, so, you know, Andy Samberg, his character, Niles is going through this and, uh, somehow Chris Emiliati's character, Sarah ends up with him on this journey of repeating this day over and over and over again. And in the middle of this time loop, and you kind of see the the basic idea of where this is going. They end up, uh, they end up falling for each other and seeing the, the similarities there as they're figuring their way through everything. Um, JK Simmons kind of has just a random role that pops up every now and then. That's really funny, I think. Um, and it's got, it's a really random cast. You've got Peter Gallagher in there. You've got, uh, you've got Tyler Hoechlin. You've got, uh, Camilla Mendez from, um, Oh, what's it? Riverdale. Uh, June Squibb pops up a couple times. Uh, I really, I really love this movie. Um, it was, it was charming. It was fun. It was funny. Um, the, uh, the chemistry between the two leads is great. Whenever JK Simmons is in a movie, he always makes it better. Um, it is, um, a premise that I feel a lot of people have been afraid to even try to duplicate because of how revered and loved Groundhog Day is. Uh, but I think there were, uh, this definitely brought something fresh to it. It brought, uh, something fun to it. And, uh, and it was, it was definitely, I mean, you could say it's kind of like a 2020 Groundhog Day in some ways, but again, it's its own thing as well. I'm giving it three and a half stars. I was really surprised by it. It, um, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Now this film debuted at Sundance this year and also it set, uh, the record for the highest price tag for a film coming out of Sundance to be bought by a production company. And then because of the shutdown, it ends up coming out streaming on Hulu instead of getting a theatrical release through Neon. But um, but still, uh, great movie, worth checking out. I would say three and a half stars from me. Zach, what did you think? I am in total agreement with you, Terry. This is a really solid, funny movie. I was not expecting to like this movie very much because when I heard that it's basically a similar premise to Groundhog Day, I'm like, how many of these movies do we have to see now? We got Edge of Tomorrow slash Live, Die, Repeat, whatever it's called. We got The One I Love, which is kind of a similar premise. We got Russian Doll, which does sort of a similar thing. Um, So I was kind of uh, a little cynical going into it. Um, But I got to say, you know, I, I think those are pretty heavy, sort of insurmountable odds when you know that a movie's, you know, it's never going to live up to as good as Groundhog Day is, and it's fundamentally a derivative premise. However, this movie did, I thought, a lot of really kind of surprising and refreshing things. I think the biggest difference is the fact that it's not just the main character who is um, in solitary, um, you know, living this day over and over again. He has other people that are accompanying him. I don't want to go too much into spoilers with this movie, but um, I think that's a crucial difference. And he's also just sort of a slacker. He's not really that motivated to get out of this eternal time loop. Um, And that 
makes his character kind of charming but also pathetic at the same time. Therefore, sort of a perfect um, Andy Samberg role. And if you watch like the first 10 or 15 minutes of this movie, it's kind of hard to understand what's going on. Um, but then when you know what's happening, you almost want to rewind it and go back to the first 10 minutes of the movie because then you can understand that he's already kind of stuck in this loop. Um, I thought the movie was very creative, very funny, and not just in the ways that they off themselves. Like, you know, you think of the Bill Murray sequence in Groundhog Day where he takes the groundhog and you know drives off the cliff in the truck. Like, they certainly do some of that. But what's kind of funny about this movie is that it actually shows the characters kind of doing different things, going off in different directions. It plays a little bit with the timelines and the chronology of this movie, too. Um, and it has sort of interesting per perspectives. J.K. Simmons is absolutely flat-out hilarious in this movie. Um, I mean, he, he has some awesome deliveries. Uh, I gotta agree, I was not expecting to like this movie nearly as much. I give it three and a half stars. It is an incredibly likable, watchable movie that um, I have a feeling like, is it an Oscar movie? No, but man, if I'm like having a bad day or something, I would love to turn on this movie. It, 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 it like popped up my spirits. It was really fun. Just a great sort of escapist hour and a half where you don't have to think about COVID every second of the day. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. All right, all right. So Todd, are we gonna be thrice approved? Yeah, I pretty much agree with you guys, like, to a T. Uh, I mean, I, I think to call it Groundhog Day is a little reductive to what this movie does, because when you have multiple people, it makes it way more complicated, it, it makes it way more mysterious, and almost m could make it more romantic. It, 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 There's, like, some things that are just, like, messing with my head that would require spoilers to talk about, but, like, I mean, I, I feel like they have to be fleshed out in some way, but uh, you can't really tell that it's a first-time screenplay, though. It reminded me, in a way, of uh, Stranger Than Fiction, which was also a first-time screenplay, and it, w it really sort of played with the genre a different way than you'd seen before. I I, I did... I, I really like uh, Andy Samberg in the role. I, I kept thinking this would have been, like, a killer Jason Biggs role at some point, but uh, Samberg is pretty much the next best thing, and, uh, yeah, it, it's an awesome movie. I, I had a great time watching it, and yeah, J.K. Simmons is fun to see. June Squibb, even, even um, Darlene Snell herself, Dale Dickey in her like a as like that ratty bar lady. Like, I, it, it's a it's, oh yeah, it's a, I forgot to mention that it's one. It's an awesome cast. Darla, it, it's a really fun, really fun movie. Three, yeah, three and a half stars for me as well. And I think that this is the the kind of general consensus. I'm looking here. It's 92 percent on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Um, it, yeah, it was one of those going into it where I was like, what is all the buzz about an Andy Samberg movie? I mean, you don't hear that, but, well, uh, the whole, the whole Lonely yeah. Island crew produced it, and yeah, anything they attach their name to, I'm there, because, like, they, they have never missed, in my opinion. Well, I, I, one of my favorite moments of the movie is, is, like, in the opening credits when you see the, the blue screen where it usually says Sony Picture Classics and it said Lonely Island Classics. That was just yeah. beautiful. And what I love about this movie, too, is, like, it actually gets funnier as it goes along in a lot of ways. Like, it doesn't just waste all the gags in the first 15 minutes like you would expect a lesser movie to. Like, I thought, honestly, one of the funniest bits of this movie is when uh, he interacts with a character named Spuds toward the end of the movie and has to convince him that uh, he's related to him. Like, that had me laughing out loud. And that was, at, like, the end of the movie at a very climactic point. So the laughs are spread out pretty evenly throughout this movie. And, again, the performances are just, like... I, this is this is the total antidote to Desperados, okay? The, the filmmakers of Desperados should be watching this movie to see everything they did wrong with their stupid premise and this movie is so much funnier so much more i mean i hate it it's more original like even though yeah it's groundhog day but it does it in a totally different way that's unique and just it, it, it's so charming and uh it, this movie you, you can't help but love it and i think what helped is you had a couple uh 
couple leads that were very, very believable, where in, in Desperados, I don't think that necessarily was the case. So you had Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti were awesome. And and you, you bought into to their characters, you bought into their relationship, and, and as it grew along the way... Um, looking at this, and and I mean, there are the comparisons to Groundhog Day that are inevitable. Is Andy Samberg turning into Bill Murray? I, I don't know. I mean, he has. I don't think he's done enough to really go there yet. I could, I could see him in like working his way there. I could see Andy Samberg in ten years doing like Adam Sandler roles. You know, like maybe not uncut gems, but maybe more like. Spanglish or, you know, uh, the cobbler. Well, maybe not the cobbler. More maybe the cobbler. I don't. Well, know. He, he passed that torch, and that's my boy, right? That's true. So Bill Murray and Andy Sam. Bill Murray when Groundhog Day came out, and Andy Samberg now are about the same age. Andy Samberg's forty-two. Bill Murray was forty-three when Groundhog Day came out. Yeah, Bill Murray had a bunch of hits before Groundhog Day, though. True, he had Ghostbusters and things like that, but. I want to hear your thoughts about the spoilers, Todd. Okay, Todd. Yeah. All right. So, here's here's our spoiler stop. So if if you haven't seen it yet, go watch it, and then you can come back and listen to this conversation. Todd, talk about spoilers. Okay. So I don't know if this is unanswerable question kind of thing or what, but so uh, they're like uh, in the tent the first time they hook up, or the maybe thousandth time or whatever. But uh, he was about to fall asleep. So if he had fallen asleep in this in these rules, he would have immediately woken up into another loop. But she was still awake, and we saw that when, when uh, she died earlier, he was still in in that same loop. So if she had, if he had fallen asleep and she was still awake, and then she woke him up, then he that would have been the first way that he woke up any other way for like hundreds of years or something. Would that have like stopped the loop, or would that would that would he like wake up as some sort of like simulation or something like that? Would he know that he's still in that loop at that point? Like I mean. It was messing with my head because, I mean, that, that, that is something that they would never have come across because now that you have two people in there, you, the, the universe and the, the layers are way, more, are way more defined. But I, there's, there's nothing that, that could ever, <laughs> they never address anything like that. I was kind of thinking a similar thing in that moment, too, is what happens. But then, I mean, does, does Roy always wake back up as soon as he would kill Niles? I mean... Well, see, and that's what I mean, because like, if he falls asleep and then she wakes him up, then uh, and he's still the same, and he knows that he just fell asleep, and woke back up, that that sort of screws with their whole logic. If at that point they would go and blow up the cave, you know, because and then I don't know. It, I don't. I find it interesting that they never answered that question. Like they they came close to it several times. Like they never actually show like Niles saying something. After Sarah, like you know, stepped in front of the truck or anything, why would he, um, why would he wake back up though? I thought once you fall asleep, you're just kind of yeah. But what? But she was still awake, and what if she woke him back up because his body's still there? Does he die the moment he falls asleep in this in this time loop, whatever? You know, interesting question. Okay, well, I mean, okay, well, at the end, they they obviously get out. And, and whatnot. So what if they went and traveled to go see Roy? Would that version of Roy have any recollection of living in a time loop? And could, if they told him how to get out of the out of the loop, would him would that trickle down to the the version of him that just lived that day? Or or I don't know. I... Okay, so my question, which didn't make any sense, was was um after after she did the test run and the goat was gone or not? We don't that, know. 
or or not. Um, I mean, assume assume it worked and the goat was gone. Then you would think if that happened, then they would be gone. However, Roy was able to find Niles like out of the loop. Yeah, you're talking about the last scene in the movie, the the, the, the kind of post credit yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah. I thought that made sense though, because he didn't he didn't go into the exploding uh, time warp thing with them, so he's still living it over and over again. So they just resume back to. Right, but if if they if they went the way of the goat, then Niles shouldn't even be at the wedding. Hmm, I see what you're saying. So the, yeah, question. so then Roy would never have met him because he wouldn't exist. At the wedding. He, he wouldn't be able to go back and find him. No, because they, the, I think it, I think what it was trying to do is it lived that day. I don't know. Well, I mean, the goat, I, I guess the goat, suppose, probably, li- like, I, I don't know. I, I pictured, like, they blowing up the thing, and then they, like, appear, like, on the rubble or something, and that's where they, they were, they are after, after they break out of the loop, and that's probably what happened to the goat, and that's why the goat wasn't in the thing anymore, because on that day, he wasn't, he never, he wouldn't have been in there. Or the next day. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. These I, were I not questions that anyone asked after, that's my boy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a slight plot hole, but, uh... I no. wanted to oh, see well. the version where they fly to Equatorial Guinea. Or, 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 or yeah, Guinea. I know. <laughs> Yeah. We needed we needed just like a, a like a five second flashback of of something that happened during that trip, um, and it was a trip in more than one way. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, this movie is thrice approved. We're all giving it. It does sound like we're all getting three and a half for all of us. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, definitely check this out. It's it's on Hulu now. Uh, like I said, just came out. It's definitely worth a watch. Fun uh, fun watch. I think really for for just about everybody. So everyone can have some fun with this one. Okay, let's move on. It's time for our deep dive. And like I said, we're doing a, a fairly recent movie. Uh, we kind of made up an anniversary so we could talk about this. We are celebrating the six-month anniversary of Uncut Gems. I made a crazy risk to gamble. It's about to pay off. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Uh, Uncut Gems last year came out right around Christmas time. It was not just a thrice approved movie for us, but it popped up on all of our all of our top lists of the year. Uh, let's see here. It was. It was. It was number one overall on the site. It was my number four. It was Zach's number one. It was Todd's number one. It was Adam's number two, uh, and it popped up on three of our four uh, all-decade top ten lists or top twenty-five lists, which put it at. Oh, what did we say it was at Todd? It's like our fifth best film of the decade. Yeah, it was something like that. Fourth or fifth. I think that was it. I'm pulling it up here. It's taking me a second. It was, yeah, it was fifth of the decade on our website as well. So, um, yes, it just it just came out fairly recently, but this is a very beloved movie by uh, by us here, and we wanted to to uh, 
di uh, do a deep dive on this and uh, over completely overanalyze this like we do with everything else. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to start with some trivia. Since Todd and Zach are the ones that had this as their number one of the year, I am hosting trivia between the two of them. And, oh, let's see here. Um, Todd, do you want to go first or second? <laughs> I'll go first. You'll go first. All right. So, Zach, unplug and go home. All right. So, Todd, we have, we have ten questions here. That are gonna be worth. Oh, I just remembered I gotta keep score. I always forget that part of this pro this process. Uh, two, four, sixteen points. So ten questions worth sixteen points. Okay. Okay. All right. And these, I, I would say, these questions range from the. I don't know. I feel like they range from the fairly simple to the kind of impossible. What we'll see. All right. Question number one. Uh, what country is shown in the first scene of the movie, and in what year is it? Ethiopia, 2010. That is correct on both fronts. Okay. Question number two. What is the name of the doctor performing the colonoscopy, and on what date did it happen? Uh, so it was... I'll, I'll do the closest, the closest to, to the date. We'll do that. Is Dr. Blauman. That is correct. And... Eastern Conference semifinals, it would be like maybe like May May third, twenty twelve. Well screw that. You got it right on the button. Are so. you got the date right? Yeah. No way. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> it said on the monitor of the colonoscopy. That's where I got it. Oh um, dude. <laughs> All right, so yeah, I'm not even get that that yeah, you got to get it right on if you're gonna get the point. Okay, uh, question number three: How old is Howard? Is uh, forty eight. That is correct. That was also on the monitor. Yeah, I remember that. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, question number four: How much money does Howard owe Arno? A hundred thousand dollars. Hundred thousand dollars. Number five: How much money does Howard get when he pawns KG's ring? Uh, he gets, uh, uh, well, he says, uh, it's 21,000 after the, with a big of 6%, I think. Yeah, yeah. 21,000. That, that's the number you needed. Okay. Good. Um, next question. When Howard steals the ball at the Celtics practice, what player does he pretend he is? Rondo. Rondo. Cookies! <laughs> Number seven. Um, what two examples does Arno use to show that Howard is spending money when he says he's broke? I uh, like, resurface his pool. That's one. And, uh, I don't know, someone is going on a trip. Uh, they like, the kids. The kids are going on some trip. I'm going to say no. The kids are going to see Timberlake. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Okay. Uh, next question. At Passover, what two things does Howard do when he goes to the bathroom? Is he, I mean, he like, texts uh, somebody. Is he either Julia or Jermani? He, uh, I'll give you half a point. He calls Julia. 
Okay. And he and and he runs into Arno. Uh, that's as he's leaving. No, the other thing he does is he checks his weight. He steps on the scale. Oh, yeah. While he's on the phone, yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, next question: What floor is Julia's apartment on? Oh, I don't know that. I'm gonna say the twelfth floor. She's on the thirty-third floor. Thirty-third floor. Okay. And the last question, this is worth three points. Um, name all the parts of the final parlay bet. There's three of them. Uh, Celtics money line, Celtics opening tip, and KG points and rebounds over 26. But supposedly he's I... trying to get to 26? <laughs> I, I didn't have I didn't have the number twenty six on there, but you got that too. So okay, so yeah, I don't I forget how many points I said there were. It was out of, but you ended up with twelve and a half points, which out is pretty good. All 15, right, fifteen, I think. I think it's sixteen. 15. Yeah, sixteen. Uh, All right. All right. All right. So uh, this is there are ten questions for a total of sixteen points. Todd got twelve and a half. Just to be clear, I've only seen this movie twice, and the second time was yesterday. So, okay. I, I, in case I have... Well, a... then I think you're going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> the, these, these questions kind of range... I would say they range from the fairly simple to the near impossible. Um, and Todd went range. on a run there and got most of them. Uh, so, uh, Todd, how many times have you seen this? Uh, I've watched it four times. Four times, Okay. <laughs> All right. It's first impressive. question. This is this is worth two points. What co uh, what country is shown in the first scene of the movie, and what year is it? Uh, Ethiopia, twenty ten. Good. Next question. Uh, what is the name of the doctor performing the colonoscopy, and on what date did it happen? Doctor Blowman and May first, twenty twelve. Blowman. It was May third, oh. twenty twelve. Get a half. Point. I was gonna go. I was gonna go with who whoever was closest, and then Todd got it. Of course, it. he did. Well, I, I, By guessing. He guessed it. <sighs> kind of similar to what you just did, but yeah, he actually got it right on the button. Whatever. So, yeah. I was, I, he was as impressed as, as, uh, as were, I am. Here's the real question. Um, what were you doing May 3rd, 2012? Oh, gosh. That should have been, been the, the <laughs> trivia question. Depends on what day of the week it was. Yeah, what day of the week was it? That's the, okay, um, yeah, another good trivia question. Yeah. Not a Monday. Uh, that, yeah. Uh, next question. How old is Howard? Oh, 43? I don't know. 48. Oh, okay. 48. Does it say that? It, it shows it on the colonoscopy monitor. Did Todd get that? Todd got oh, that. Oh, I'm screwed. All right. It's over. It was a Thursday. How much? <laughs> it was a Thursday. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> Todd looked it up. It was a Thursday. Uh, how much money does Howard owe Arno? That's a great question. Actually, I was wondering that throughout the movie. I don't. I, did they say? Because I didn't yes. hear. Okay. I, how much was it, Todd? A hundred thousand. Interesting. Because that's, that, that, that's what he pays. That's what he pays. That he bought. He borrowed the money to get the gym. Yeah. All right. Well, I definitely have some things to say about that later. Because I, I was wondering that myself. Yeah, no, it says it like very early on when the when the muscle comes to the to the shop and say you owe a hundred thousand. Uh, next question: How much money does Howard get when he pawns KG's ring? 
21,000 plus a 7% fig. You know what? I'm going to give you an extra half a point because you had the 7% right on the button. Thank what you. did so I say? Six? I don't know. You were kind of hemming and hawing. No, you said big. I think that's no, what I you landed big. on. I know what the word is. Next, uh, whatever. Next question. Uh, when Howard steals the ball at the Celtics practice, what player does he pretend he is? Uh, Tony Allen? No, that's reference no. at another time. Rondo? Yeah. Rondo, yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, next question. What two examples does Arno use to show that Howard is spending money when he says he's broke? Okay, uh, resurfacing his pool. And That is correct. Um, is, uh, taking trips, taking trips with his family? That's what Todd said, too. No, the other one is the kids are going to see Timberlake. Ah, uh, okay. I think I misheard that. I don't think I never heard Timberlake in I, that. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I, th I, I don't remember that either. they were going to some lake. I, it's like so... I feel like it's cheap asking questions about the dialogue in this movie because there's so much dialogue that is said, but you just don't hear it because it's all overlapping, so... Yeah. I, I, heard, I heard Timberlake very clearly there, so... I could see how you could uh, think it, but you they hear talked Lake about going to going Europe. somewhere. They talked about going to Europe, but not that. Not in that that's, that's a different scene. Uh, next question: At Passover, what two things does Howard do when he goes to the bathroom? He weighs himself. Yes. Um. Call makes a phone call. Does that count? I'm gonna give that to you. Yes, he calls Julia. Uh, next question: What floor is Julia's apartment on? 33 33 good it's 33 e i believe is her apartment number i'm gonna give you the extra half for uh, knowing yeah. that is 33 e oh, so that now. makes it it is now it is 12 to 9 Ooh. it is 12 to 9 so you gotta we got one question left 20, it's worth three points so you gotta run to tie it I 12 and a half, Terry. they're 23 oh, yeah, out of 26 right. we're getting there we gotta get there we're almost that's there that's right yeah, so, it, yeah. Okay, so, um, the last question, Todd did win, but that's okay. Uh, it, it's a very respectable now. Last question, we're three points. What are the three parts to the final parlay bet? Okay, uh, KG tip. Well, Celtics tip, but yes. Okay, yeah, sorry, Celtics tip. <laughs> Celtics cover and KG over on points. Over what? 18. Because the no, the, the line was, well wait okay, all right well, it wasn't it wasn't KG over on points. No, it was it, you said twenty six before it was it was points and rebounds together over twenty six. Right, but it was eighteen points plus eight rebounds. Yeah, so I you thought, had to get over twenty six combined. Yeah, yeah, it was it was, but it it was the two combined. It right. wasn't it wasn't yeah. Right, well yeah, eighteen points plus eight rebounds. And then the Celtics over, or the Celtics cover. It, it, it doesn't matter. You still lose. <laughs> well, I made it more respectable. That's the important thing. We're gonna we're gonna call it twelve and a half to twelve. Uh, Todd wins. How did Todd get a half? Todd got a half. Uh, he said I, I gave him a half. He knew May third was, a, said, was uh, a Thursday. He said he texted Julia in the bathroom instead of calling Julia. So I gave oh. him a half a point. Okay. All right, so Todd, you win uh, trivia, so you get to start us off. What is Uncut Gems all about? Uncut Gems is this 
awesome movie by Benny and Josh Safdie, and it's about this guy Howard Ratner, played by Adam Sandler, in what my Blu-ray describes as a mythologically great performance. And I've never heard those words used before like that, but uh, I think it's a perfect way to describe it, because he is unbelievable in this movie. He plays, yeah, he's a diamond dealer in the in the New York Diamond District, and he has a gambling addiction, and he is uh, his debts keep mounting up because he borrowed some money to get this rock from Ethiopia that is worth a whole bunch of money, and he is uh, everything keeps escalating because he has Kevin Garnett coming into his shop, and he kind of takes it and he and uh, he uh, prevents him from selling his auction, and everything just keeps going, and it is super intense and super stressful. It's the most stressful movie I've ever seen. I've seen it four times, and it does not get any less stressful than this. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's it's borderline kind of a perfect movie, uh, especially a late 2000, 2010s movie. It is, it's as good as it gets, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I will never stop watching this movie. I can feel it. I would almost say that on, on rewatches, it almost gets more stressful because you know where it's going. Like, like you, the more you watch it, the more um, you see earlier and earlier where it's going to end up and the signs that it's going to end up there. And so you get start getting stressed earlier and earlier because the, the stress isn't, you know, how's it going to turn out? It's It's the stress of watching Howard slowly unravel and just completely go out of control and make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Even, like, the predicaments was... he's in, I get stressed out. Like, th- there's sometimes when, like, I- I'm just, like, like just watching the scene is so stressful, and I, I mean, I know how it goes, but I'm like, it- it's making me nervous, and I'm, I'm, and I know, I don't know what happens. <laughs> yeah. Zach, it was your number one of the year last year as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, it is a roller coaster of a movie. It is... I can't, I mean, I can only think of maybe like two other movies from this millennium that are at the same time so compulsively watchable that you can't do anything else. And yet sort of paradoxically at the same time, you could probably come in 40 minutes late and still be totally engrossed by this movie. And that's like Sideways and Kill the Volume 2, which would be like, you know, my number was one and two of the 20, 2000s. I'm going to take back what I said. Todd, Todd was absolutely right on the nose when he put this as one of his top 10 movies of the decade. I feel bad about it. I had only seen it once. We made that list like, you know, only a few weeks after I'd seen Uncut Gems. If I could redo that list, this movie would definitely make my top 10 of the decade. It might actually be the best American movie this decade. It so holds up on a second viewing. I would agree with what you said, Terry. It is mo- it is more stressful watching it a second time. Uh, watching it again, I just noticed things, uh, really peripheral things, more about like the Arno character and uh, the uh, the Damani character, things I didn't really notice the first time because there's just so much freaking stuff going on in this movie. And uh, the Safdie brothers are geniuses. They are God uh, and there are no heretics allowed on set, as Brad Pitt said about Tarantino. And uh, you know what? Uh, I love this movie as much as Todd does. Maybe, well, maybe not as much, but I, 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 th- I think I do. Yeah, and if I were to look at it again, it might crack my top 25. I'm the only one that did not have it in my top 25. It's it's in the next, like, it was in the next, like, 5 or 10. Um, yeah, it, it's just absolutely amazing. Um, the first thing we're going to do here in, in looking at this, um, I, I think I think it's safe to say one of the categories we always talk about is, is highest war performance. And I, I think it's safe to say that 
the obvious answer here is Adam Sandler, and he's he makes is the only reason that really makes this film happen and go and and be as great as it is. So, um, which makes it even more of a crime that the fact that this was completely shut out at the Oscars, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but uh, we're gonna do a quick Mount Rushmore of Adam Sandler performances. Um, do we want to say Uncut Gems doesn't count since this is like by far the best of his career or should we just say that that's the non-negotiable and we're each going to pick one other one yeah it's the non-negotiable that has to be right okay yeah all right so that so that's the one that all of us say is on the list and now we're gonna uh each submit our our other our other ones to put up up on mount rushmore of adam sandler performances uh zach i'm gonna let you go first thanks for letting me go first i'm gonna pick the easy one get it out of everyone's way so you can just go on to something better in your life that is obviously punch drunk love uh you know i did not think much of adam sandler as an actor before punch drunk love nor did roger ebert and um it's his i never thought he would get better than punch drunk love i mean it's just it it, the, the the crazy things that happen in life i never thought he could attain the level that he did in punch drunk love let alone even even make it better so punch drunk love to me he'll always be barry egan but man uh this movie uh you know he's incredible yeah, we, we kind of knew you were going to say that. When yeah, we decided so we were going to so do I went first. and I were like, well, he, he's going to say Punch Drunk Love. So. All right, Todd, who do you have? Or what do you have? What character? What uh, performance? What movie? I, I got, I'll go with Funny People because in the, I, I feel like in this, in Uncle Gems, like, I mean, it's like a jaw drop watching him do what he does. But in Funny People, he's really relaxed because it is something that is really personal to him. And it's really hard to see a whole lot of actors doing that in that movie because it has the Adam Sandler quirks and it definitely has the the parallels to his life. But it's also really dramatic and he does a lot of the the Sandler freakout things. But it also is in the context of a, a really warm-hearted movie at the same time. And uh, he he's amazing in that movie. All right. I, I kind of saw that one coming as well. Um, the one I'm going to go with, uh, I think we need to, we need to have something represented from the, from the nineties. If we're talking Adam Sandler, because that's when Sandler was really at his, at his peak, uh, at least in, in his status. And so I'm going to go with, um, yes, we're talking at this as a, in, as a, in the terms of status, Zach, um, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with big daddy as a as my selection because of all the movies he did in the 90s and so many of them he played kind of the same character i mean happy gilmore billy madison i mean even if you get into like water boy little nicky things like that he's all kind of playing a similar thing but in big daddy i think that's the one that also has heart where he's able to show you know his his slacker adam sandlerness of the 90s but also have that that heart to him that comes out in some of his performances later on in performances like funny people and punch drunk love you could throw something like uh like rain over me in there as well of the heart that comes out in that um so uh so yeah i'm gonna go big daddy as kind of the the bridge from the the crazy comedy adam sandler to what he was able to do uh in the 21st century i really thought you were gonna say snl well, yeah, I mean, he he was like the original, I mean, you could say he was kind of like Jimmy Fallon on SNL because he always laughed in every sketch he was in. <laughs> and he was the song and dance guy, well, not the dance guy, but he was the song man that would always be singing something, but uh, but no, I'm, yeah, 
Big Daddy. So we've got Uncut Gems, Punch Drunk Love, Funny People, and Big Daddy. I think that's a fairly, I mean, that's a fairly like, solid, strong Mount Rushmore. That is, that's his career in a nutshell. I mean, that's like, you know, every film is like eight years apart. Every film is like a different iteration of his persona. I, I kind of like it. That might be our best Mount Rushmore we've ever done right there. Well, that's because we agreed uh, on the easy us... one. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but but there's always one that someone says that we're like, what? Are you insane? Like, but that didn't happen. Like if okay. I said airheads. Yeah, yeah, like if you had said airheads and we had to talk about swimming pools. Um, how insane is it that this did not get a single Oscar nomination? It is a crime. It is. I think it's the best edited movie of the 2010s. It's, Maybe the best lead actor performance of the 2010s, and I don't know. I, it's it's just it's stupid that that they could they go overlook it, and it didn't get any major awards nominations at all, which makes it even worse. Like no Golden Globes, no. I mean, other than the Spirit Awards, which he had an awesome speech, but you know, that that was the highlight. Well, there were a lot of highlights of the Spirit Awards, like but between that and the Laura Dern song, I don't know. Exactly. But uh. Well, and I would say this is this was a very competitive best actor lineup this year. Um, Todd, I think you're the only one that's seen all five of the best actor nominees this year. Who would you pull out to put Adam Sandler in? Uh, so, uh, g- give me the nominees real quick. Uh, you had, oh, I should probably have him in front of me and I don't. Um, hold on, give me one sec. Uh, you had the winner... Who's escaping me at the moment? Joaquin Phoenix, uh, <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix, Leonardo DiCaprio, Adam Driver, Jonathan Price, Antonio Banderas. So the easy one to kick out would be uh, Jonathan Price. Uh, the the others are are really solid performances too. Like it's arguably Leo's like second or third best performance ever, and and Antonio Banderas I would never want to take out of that. But yeah, Jonathan Price would be the easy one to take out. I've also seen all. But five. he's also a tough I've also one. seen all five films too, though. I, oh, you've seen Pain and Glory. I didn't yeah, know I've that. seen Pain and Glory, and I would take out uh, Leo. I think oh, I think okay. I think Jonathan Price is actually really good in the Two Popes. Well, I'm not Leo saying he's really done, good, but like Leo, Leo is Leo's I mean, done that Leo, before. A top though. three Leo performance ever. I, I wouldn't. Oh, I mean, that's that's that insane. The, I know he well, was. What I was gonna here. say, I I was gonna say it'd be hard to take out Jonathan Price because it was one of those career achievement things, and it was so great to see him get his first. But Banderas, <laughs> take care of that with Banderas. What was the biggest snub? Was the biggest snub Adam Sandler? Todd, you said editing was a big snub too. Yeah, well, yeah, it's. I I mean, I that that mo- this movie has, like the layers keep adding on. There's like no break in the action. There there's no point to really catch your breath. It it is something that you're just like stuck with for two two hours and fifteen minutes. And I mean, I, I can't imagine. I could. I, I could see it have taken thirty minutes longer to do it, but they pack it all into this like really tight package. Zach, what would you say is the biggest snub? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to also look at the screenplay too. I realize it's a pretty loaded year for screenplay, but you know, kick nineteen seventeen out of best original screenplay. We don't need that shit there. Another low key category I would really put want to put this movie in would be best sound editing because as we just kind of talked about, there's, I mean, there is like so much overlapping dialogue in this movie, and yet you can understand what's going on because they strategically kind of place certain lines as louder than other lines, louder kind of than other ambient noise in the background, and the fact that Ford v Ferrari won sound editing is appalling. So. 
I mean, this movie, I feel like, uh, should have swept both the technical and above the line uh, award and nominations. I mean, any any category, you know, name it. It should have been nominated. So I'll go with another one. I'll go, I'll go director. I, I think the Safdie brothers could have easily slipped into that director race. Um, and they, they, you can see their career kind of working their way towards that. I still haven't seen any of the other Safdie brothers movies. I need to do that. But you could see their career slowly working its way up and then this was definitely the peak of their career so far and it's going to be a hard thing to top but i think this definitely got their name on the map and the next movie they make is really going to have some uh some uh cred behind it some momentum behind it to get an awards push how about for sure how about art direction i mean they constructed that whole um jewelry business as a set I mean, that that is such a memorable set piece. It's so brilliant, you know. And then, like the other interiors, like the the apartment and the house and uh, the jewelry stores, it's wonderful. It's it's amazing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, uh, let's let's now look at this. Uh, another thing that we do on our deep dives is we uh, recast uh, the movie. And so we're going to go through and recast this one. This one's going to be kind of difficult because it just came out six months ago, but let's recast this and see what happens. Um, we're going to go through this, uh, see how, how quick you can go through it. Todd, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, Howard first, which was Adam Sandler. What do you have? Uh, I, I had a couple options. I, I was trying to I was trying to use a someone who has Jewish descent because I feel like that is a very important part of this. And uh, Joaquin Phoenix is is an obvious answer. He would be unreal in this. And uh, the the other one I I had Terry would appreciate, which is David Schwimmer. That'd be another another real Ooh. Adam Sandler kind of kind of thing. But like he I think he would be totally stressful to watch. But I mean, the the original cast in this was was uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, and then Jonah Hill was attached to, at some point. Those would obviously be amazing choices as well. Schwimmer is an inspired choice. That, I love that. Thank you. Much, much better than Phoenix. Yo, Phoenix would All be right, nuts so, to watch, though. So what I did for mine is I went back uh, and I decided, instead of casting it now, I decided uh, we've talked, we've done a lot of um, you know, celebrating 25th anniversaries this year uh, and uh, and so I decided let's go back to 1995 and what ha- what would this movie look like if it was made in like 1995 um, Howard was the toughest one to cast I had a tough time coming up with one uh, but yeah, like, like Todd said it kind of needs needs to be yeah uh, I went with Tony Shalhoub oh. I could see it I could see it like a 90s Tony Schlub. He might have yeah. been a little young to play him at that time. But I could see it work. That was the best I could come up with. It was a hard one to do. Yeah, that that, is, that would be interesting to see. <laughs> all right, all, Zach, what do you got? All I can think of with Tony Shalhoub is his mustache from Big Night, which I, I think is also like a 90, uh, mid-90s movie. And I yeah, it, it would be interesting. I also went back in time. Uncut Gems should have been made in the 1970s. This is screaming 1970s. So I cast it as a 70s movie. And there is only one actor, and Todd knows the answer to this, there's only one actor from the 70s that could have played it. He might have been a, a little young. He is the stepfather of Camila Marone. His name is Mr. Al Pacino. And he, th- this was a role that was made to be played by Al Pacino, even though he's not Jewish. But my God, what, what, what an outstanding performance that would have been in the 70s. The only other one I would have said would be John Cazale. I could see him play this role. 
Man, he, yeah, that would have been a way step out for John Cazale, but I mean... <laughs> yeah, I has like John Cazale ever said that many lines in a movie? I don't think I've ever heard him <laughs> swear in a movie. <laughs> but yes, Pacino is the obvious obvious choice if you're going back to the 70s. All right, uh, next we have Damani, played by Lakeith Stanfield. Todd, who do you got? I think this is the hardest one to recast, because I think Lakeith Stanfield has that... Like he almost has a monopoly on these kind of characters. I say Kelvin Harrison Jr. He kind of ha- had a big last couple of years. I but it, I'm, I don't feel good about it. I would still I would say Lakeith Stanfield all day. All right, uh, mid '90s, uh, Damani, Martin Lawrence. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just as soon as I saw I, I saw that name, I was like, yep, that's it, that's it, that's perfect. Zach, who do you got? Okay, I went with um, John Amos, who was in Uncut Gems as Adam Sandler's neighbor. He is a.k.a. the guy who played the father on Good Time. And uh, I think (laughs) if we're going full circle here, he also could have made a great Damani in the 1970s version. Um, I don't know what he looked like back then, but, you know, judging by his acting in in Uncut Gems today, um, I think he could have pulled it off, probably, maybe. I don't know. I've never seen Good Times. I've seen Good Time, but not Good Times. Beautiful. Very nice. Okay, next we've got Julia, played by Julia Fox in her first film uh, performance in her uh, theatrical debut. Todd, who do you have as Julia? Well, cheating would be Kristen Stewart because, I mean, she could do that in her sleep. But So I went with Bria Vinate, uh, yes, which we haven't mentioned yes. in a long time. But, you know, similarly, first time performance in the Florida Project, she, w- she would absolutely live as Julia. <laughs> I think one of the things with Julia that I was looking at uh, here was uh, you needed someone that like screams sex appeal too, like you you that that's a big part of who Julia is. I went with Carmen Electra. Nice. So are, are we building this around Dennis Rodman? No. <laughs> I, I mean, wait. It could be. Out of respect. It could be. That's not who I went with, but. Gosh, yeah, Rodman would be a good one for that. We'll get to that in a second. All right, Zach, who do you got? First of all, Bria Vinate is a perfect call, Todd, because it, realistically there's no one else who could play that role except for Bria Vinate. although I do think um, uh, uh, Riley Keough could also play the role too, and I believe oh, she actually good. read for the part too. Um, uh, th- uh, apparently the Sappies found um, Julia Fox kind of on the, not on the street, but they found her through Instagram, kind of similar to Bria Vinate. so I also went with someone who maybe would have not been immediately in the film realm in the 70s, but someone who is an heiress and someone who has that um, ad attitude and uh, i went with the one and only patty hurst aka the uh woman who got involved with the cmbnese liberation army and uh later was commuted her sentence was commuted by jimmy carter and uh was pardoned by bill clinton later in life she would have made a great actress the safties are very much involved with the real world so the 1970s let's get some real world people in this movie patty hurst i I think she could have killed it i don't know if she would be a good actor generally but you know maybe Nice, nice. All right, Todd. KG, who would be the new Kevin Garnett? Well, if they would set it in 2013, Ray Allen would be the obvious choice. So I went with something a little different, and somebody who has never acted before would be awesome to watch with is Ron Artest. I'm not sure which series they would would build it around, but I'm sure that he had one killer series somewhere in like the late 2000s that, uh, that they could do this with. Nice, nice. Yeah, I was thinking, um, 
I mean, Dennis Rodman, looking at mid-90s, especially after watching Last Dance, would be insane. But KG's not really the partier in this either. So I went with Charles Barkley. And uh, also also with this idea that, you know... Charles Barkley Howard. Why couldn't he be (laughs) Howard? Oh, that's what I'd say. This is this is my conspiracy theory that I'm building towards. Is is Howard inspired Charles Barkley to have his gambling problem, and uh, and that's that's like the subplot that comes out of this movie. Is hey, I wanted in on that bet, and <laughs> that is terrible. Anyways, okay. So yeah, I'm going Charles Barkley. Zach, who's your '70s? Uh, basketball player well if we're talking acting chops and there's it begins and end with uh kareem abdul jabbar but um i'm talking someone who could also uh really um bring uh realism to the role uh, especially getting the opening tip and i thought of world be free um because he wasn't in any movies in the 70s he's an iconic 70s nba player um you know world be free would have been awesome in this movie metal world peace and world be free i like it Maybe, maybe instead of KG, if I'm talking 95, maybe I go with Scotty Pippen. And then you have like a, a scene where Howard flips out when Scotty decides to sit out the last, uh, on that last play. Honestly, man, how could you not go Dennis Rodman? You already have Carmen Electra in this movie. I don't see Scotty Pippen trying, you know, uh, investing in a rock or his earrings or anything like that. Like, this is a total Dennis Rodman role. That is the low hanging fruit. Is. It really is. Yeah. I, I Yeah. Sure, why not? Whatever. Okay. Uh, Todd, Arno is who we're going to next. Arno was originally played by Eric Bogosian. Who do you have as Arno? Uh, well, Eric Bogosian is awesome. He's been awesome since he was in talk radio back in the day. And so I'm with someone who also had his peak like way back when, and that's Gabe Kaplan who is also a professional poker player and the host of Celebrity Poker. Uh, but he has not acted in a long time, but he is an old, an, an old-time Jewish actor, and I, I think to see, him, to see him transform into that kind of character would be like watching Albert Brooks uh, transform into his character in Drive. I, I, think, I, I, I just, honestly, I want it to happen, but, uh, you know, maybe it's not the best choice, but it's my choice. For a second there, I thought you were going to say Gabe Kapler, the uh, manager of the San Francisco Giants, but that's not where you went. Not quite. Um, that, yeah, that, w- that would have made no sense. Um, all right, so my Arno from the mid-'90s, I went with Alan Arkin. I thought that that, that fit. Yeah. Kind of the right age range. I like it. Yeah, he doesn't really have to do anything. He's just, uh, yeah. Uh, that, it's he, all about the facial expressions, yeah. and, and Arkin is great at facial expressions. And he's got to be kind of mopey, too. Like, I think Arkin could pull that off kind of beautifully. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, Zach, who do you got? I went with Ben Gazzara, um, who uh, was well, kno- yeah, well known for his um, collaborations with John Cassavetes. And of course, if the 70s version of Uncut Gems was made, it would have to be written and directed by John Cassavetes. In fact, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is kind of basically Uncut Gems of the 70s, and Ben Gazzara stars in that movie, and he's excellent in it, and uh, he should have gotten more recognition for his, his great acting chops. Fortunately, he died, RIP, but one of the great uh, kind of overlooked actors of the 70s. All right, good call. All right, next we have Phil, the muscle, the uh, the collector, played by Keith William Richards, in I think his second film role. Like he'd barely done anything. I think he'd done stunts in one other thing. Uh, Todd, who do you got? 
Uh, well, I have two choices. One is Ronald Bronstein, who is uh, the actual writer and editor of of Uncut Gems, who which I'm surprised he's not in the movie because he's like their buddy and he was starring their very first movie, Daddy Long Legs. He'd be really awesome in it. But Michael Rappaport, I mean, he, he just screams like this, like <laughs> yes! absurd, yes! you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the henchman character. Like I, I don't, know, I mean, he's paroling around New York. Yeah, Michael Rappaport. <laughs> I don't know if he's menacing enough, though. Like, I, I don't, I'm not going to really, you know, tremble in fear when I see Michael Rappaport, but I, I kind of love yeah, the idea of it, Rappaport though. talks too much to, to, be, to be physically menacing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. He kind of looks like him, though. Yeah, I can see that. All right, uh, I went with, so I'm looking mid-90s here. Um, I went with, uh, you know, you got to kind of go with the muscle uh, I went with uh, a little-known actor. His name is Trevor Goddard. I know him most as being Lieutenant Commander Mick Brumby from JAG back in the day. <laughs> he also plays one of uh, Raymond Calitri's henchmen that tried to kill Memphis nice. Reigns and Gone in 60 Seconds. Um, yeah, he's this big Aussie brute, and uh, he would have been, like, perfect to just be the guy that follows Howard around. And he would have been pretty young him. at the time, but, I mean... Uh, not too young. Not too young. I mean, I'm talking 95. It's five years before. What would he? He would have been like 30. Yeah, he would have been in his early to mid 30s. But still, he he was a scary dude. He was in he was in the Mortal Kombat movie in 1995. That's what kind of that's what you're looking at here when you when you cast him. All right, Zach, who do you got? Terry, I don't know whether to compliment or criticize you for not casting Dean Norris in this role in the mid 90s, but um, <laughs> that's. That's the obvious casting. No, you know what? If you look at um, uh, Keith Williams Richards, this guy is only in his second movie. He was a first responder on 9/11. Um, pretty much unknown guy. So I'm thinking, you know, John Cassavetes would want to go on the street, look for people on the street. He might go off the street. He might go onto the to maybe the, the the railroad, maybe the Amtrak that goes between um, you know Washington D.C. and and Wilmington, and he would see a young senator by the name of Joe Biden, who maybe looks a little bit intimidating, like he doesn't. With anyone, and I think he would cast Joe Biden as this henchman because Joe Biden kicks ass, and I think he could have done it in the 1970s. I mean, you know, maybe a little rough around the edges, but you know what? You, you got to get that natural, raw talent, someone who's not from the Hollywood system. Young Joe Biden. I think the silence says it all. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Let's move on here. Uh, next, we have is it? It's Dina, right? Yeah. Dina, uh, played by the wickedly talented Adele Dazim, uh, Adina <laughs> <Yes>. Menzel. <laughs> that joke's Just never gonna get that. old. Yeah. Um, Todd, who do you have as Dina? Well, when I was thinking about how they could have possibly come across her to play Dina, I, I was just thinking like, what will be the least expected actress that you could do, and. I, so I, I I looked at a list of like all the of all the actresses in that age range, and I, I just stopped around Kate Hudson. I, I think she would be a killer as that, and it would be definitely something she hasn't done in like a long time. But I I could see it. Nice, nice. Uh, so what I went with, I went, looking at mid nineties. I went with the fact that Adina Menzel is pretty much exclusively known for Broadway. And for her vocal talents, not necessarily her acting talents. So uh, I went with Bernadette Peters. Hmm. I like it. 
And and I think she would actually do a really good job at it too. So, yeah, I could see it. Zach, who do you got? Yeah, I also went to, uh, with someone with um, some Broadway experience. Um, this was the most obvious selection for me for the '70s version, and that is Anne Margaret. Mm, that makes sense. That's almost too obvious, but you know. All right, I've got one more here, uh, and that is, I think this this kind of plays a, a good, a decent role in like time stamping the film. So I think this will be an interesting one. The Weekend. It's like this up-and-coming guy that no one's heard of uh, when when this movie is set in 2012. Um, Todd, did you come up with a with a good replacement for the weekend? Well, I mean, if I'm casting it now, what I, I can't think of a better option than an Oscar-nominated, uh, you know, filmmaker if you want to call him that. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what year I'm necessarily setting this in. So no, I, I, I didn't actually come up with another one. Okay. Uh, so if I'm looking mid '90s, I decided to come up with another uh, with an up and coming guy who would be hanging around uh, the the Big Apple in uh, in the uh, concrete jungle where dreams are made of. That's right, Jay Z is my The Weekend in 1995. I can dig that. Yeah, yeah. Zach, who do you got? Uh, for me, it was an obvious choice. I went with Barry Gibb. But I also thought that um, if I had to go with some backups, I thought about Meatloaf and Engelbert Humperdinck. I don't know what that is. Not, nothing's more gangster than Engelbert, Engelbert Humperdinck. He could have pulled it off. <laughs> and Meatloaf was in Rocky Horror Picture Show. He had some acting chops. That's true. That's true. Well, and, and his name is Robert Paulson. Don't forget Yes. How could you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fun. Uh, who would Nicolas Cage play? I, I actually considered Nicolas Cage would be a decent Howard. Yeah, I was actually thinking that too, because I feel like his character is so similar to uh, his character in Snake Eyes. You know? Oh, that's an interesting thought. But my other thought was he would play the high roller at the end. The data. <laughs> Hell, it helps Julia get yes. the cash out of the casino. <laughs> I have a lot of things to say about that character. <laughs> All right, well, uh, well, let's get into the rest of our categories then, so we can get to it. Um, do we want to just skip highest wars, and are, are we all just going to agree it's Adam Sandler and move on? Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I said Lucky Stanfield was the hardest to cast, but I, I I would never replace Adam Sandler. Uh, well, okay, I think Sandler's obvious choice. However, I want to make the case for KG, because if you look at the history of this movie, like, the Safdies originally cast um, uh, Amari Stoudemire, because they had the whole, like, black Jewish theme kind of going with it, and then there was a time when they really wanted Kobe to do it, and so they rewrote the script around Kobe's 61-point game at Madison Square Garden, and then Kobe turned it down, and then they went to Joel Embiid. And again, I can't really imagine any of those three players as good as Kevin Garnett is in this movie. I mean, can you, Todd? Like, I, I can't see it. Well, Amari Stoudemire, like, they ended up snatching him for Trainwreck, and he's really funny in that. I, I think he, I mean, he's, he, they, they obviously saw that he had some acting chops but i mean i mean garnett i i never expected that out of garnett but it i think i think it would have been i think kobe maybe i don't know about Embiid. I, I don't really see him having that much charisma 
Really? See, I see almost the opposite with Embiid. Like, I see Embiid as being too jokey and wanting to turn it too much into a, a caricature, almost like LeBron did in Trainwreck, like drawing a little too much attention to himself and wanting some one-liners or something. Amari didn't do that in Trainwreck, though. Well, Le- LeBron certainly did, though. Yeah. I could have I seen Kobe pulling this role off. I could have seen that. So, according to the Safties, they were in talks with Kobe to do it, and I do think this is a really valid question, because if Kobe does this movie, I think this movie completely changes um, post, you know, February 2020, the events of February 2020, but, like, um, apparently uh, they were turned down by Kobe because Kobe said he wanted to direct as well as act. Mm. He gets that that Oscar, and he's like, all right, (laughs) I'm directing this shit now. I mean, keep in mind... (laughs) Kobe has an Oscar for directing. The Safdie brothers do not. They don't even have a nomination. So, the who's weekend, the real filmmaker? The weekend does have a nomination. <laughs> That's true too. Yeah, Todd and I were talking before this started and said the only people in this movie that are Oscar nominated are the Weekend and Judd Hirsch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because Adina Menzel didn't even go to the Oscars. It was Adele, Adele Hazib. No, um, but well, she didn't get the nomination. She does. She doesn't she, write the songs. She just sings them. That's true. Um, how does this movie change if Kobe is in it instead of KG? Because I think there was a realistic possibility that could have happened. Does well, anything it, it, change? If they were building it around his 61-point game, like that... What, his last game? Like six, his 60-point game, or what? No, uh, like apparently he had a 60-point game at Madison Square Garden, like in 2010 or something. So, I don't know. I mean, it, I think the fact that it's the playoffs gives it a lot more clout because he's playing in the same city and he's really close the whole time i i it would it would have been more hard to like make a script for it i guess but i mean i I think kobe i i don't think that that would have taken away from the impact of it yeah well i I like the fact it it makes it it makes it work also the fact that it's the playoff series so there's like multiple games that are playing a role in this in this movie it makes it more tight and uh and uh more claustrophobic so I listened to the Safdie's interview with Sean Fennessy before recording this podcast, and they talked about how each time, because you know, they'd been working on the script for 10 years, each time they had a different NBA star maybe attached to it, they completely rewrote it. So like uh, the Amari Stoudemire thing was an entirely different playoff series. They couldn't come up with a playoff series that Kobe was in where he would have been on the East Coast, so they made it around Kobe's 61-point game. So apparently they went through like 160 drafts of the screenplay over 10, the course of 10 years, which is crazy, and they had to completely discard the Kobe parts um, the Kobe script when he opted out of it I guess what I'm more asking though is like let's say Kobe does this movie and then you know he dies in February like does this movie get more remembered like you know like uh, Heath Ledger in the Dark Knight like does this now become sort of an iconic uh, performance or kind of you know remnant of movie history or something I mean it's possible but the nominations had already come out it's not like they could you know Peter Finch it and whatever and and you know, vote for it differently. They don't do writing votes or anything, so... I mean, they would have... Kobe a supporting actor nomination or something? I don't know, man. I mean, you're right. I don't think practically they could have done anything different, but, like, this movie gets its whole whole segment at the Oscars or something, right? Like, something crazy has to happen. Yeah, I mean, him him being an Oscar winner for for an animated short and then being in this that would have completely changed the narrative around well it, it already was a huge deal because, he, because he's from la like he's an la guy i mean that, that makes it already like the, an iconic oscars thing yeah all right that that that's a really interesting question and 
yeah, I, I, it would be interesting to see what this would look like with somebody else. And I think Kobe's the best. I've been trying to, I've been sitting here trying to think of somebody else that could, that could slide into it, but no one else really, really fits as well. Maybe like a D Wade would have been in, would have been interesting. But you know, like going back to your original question, Terry, about, is it just a given that Sandler's the highest war? Like KG, I mean, I would imagine, you know, I don't, I don't live in New York. I'm not a Knicks fan, but I would imagine that KG gets under the skin of New York Knicks fans. Like that guy must be so annoying. Um, you know, to win a title with the Celtics and to constantly dominate the Knicks over the course of his entire career. That I feel like as a, as a Knicks fan watching this movie, it, it I, I feel like that's kind of perfect casting. Like, what other guy owned the Knicks the way that KG did on the Celtics? Well, and you could also say he, he you could say he's irreplaceable simply because he's got that playoff series that was between Boston and Philly that made this such an easy right for them to do. Exactly. Do either of you remember right. that playoff series? I don't. I was trying to remember some people on the Sixers at the time, other than Elton Brand, because he asked if he wants to step on his neck. But I don't. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know any other players on that. Well, Iguodala must have been on that team, right? Oh yeah, he might have been. Yeah. So the the 2012 Sixers. Uh, yeah, Iguodala and Drew Holiday and Elton Brand and Thaddeus Young. Um, What's kind of interesting, though, about that series is they say in the movie that Philadelphia was favored in the final game. I don't know how that's possible because it was at Boston. But, like, um, I remember that series because, I, you know, I'm a Boston fan and I'm a Celtics fan. I remember that team pretty well. Was Reggie Evans uh, on that Sixers team? Because I feel like Terry and I saw a game with that team. Oh, that could be. I think Reggie Evans was that on feel, that team. That feels like a Reggie, a Reggie team. You remember that game? That feels about right. <laughs> I remember that game. He, like, laid down on the scorer's table at one point when someone was arguing with the ref. Yeah. Yeah. Sidetrack. Sorry, Zach. Go go. <laughs> continue your thought. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I don't really have anything to say except that that, Celtic, that was the last great Doc, KG, Paul Pierce Celtics team. And they would have made the NBA Finals, but then they went into game six and LeBron exploded for 45 points and they couldn't take care of business at home and they lost. But, you know, I, I feel like for a lot of Boston fans, that team brings back some good memories and some bad memories about really what could have been. But that was sort of the last of the great Celtics teams. All right. Until maybe this year. Who knows? They might make the make the finals this year once the NBA starts back up. Yeah, you have All such right. condensed uh, thing. The best coach. I mean, that could easily be it with no home court advantage yeah. or anything. Yeah. All right. Worst performance. What's the worst performance in this movie, Todd? Uh, the worst performance is easily Noah Fisher as Marcel Ratner, uh, his daughter. Uh, because it's probably more the character, but I just hate her face. Like, it just annoys me. And she's, I mean, she's probably just like a typical teenager or something. But the the fact that she came from who her two parents are, I can never see that coming out of that. It just seems like someone who was bored. I mean, and she, yeah, she was half on the phone, but I, I don't know. It was, a, it was bad. I, I hate that. I don't like that scene. It's not just uncomfortable. It's just bad. Yeah, that's not a bad call. Uh, I'm going to go with, um, let's see here. I'm going with uh, Tommy Kaminick, who plays Nico, which is Phil's uh, sidekick henchman. Because he's just kind of just there and is useless most of the time and just kind of lets Phil do all the work. 
And with a, uh, I'm going to throw in an honorable mention to um, Palm Clementiev as Lexus, who I didn't even realize was in this movie until I just looked at the, the screen. And um, But she's kind of like a big deal now, because she's Mantis in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and the last couple Avengers movies. And she's in this movie. I think she's... I think she's one of Julia's friends in the apartment at the beginning. Like, either the one that's leaving as Howard gets there, or the one that's in laying in bed with her looking at the pictures. I don't even know who Anyways, that is. that's like some... That, that's like some... One of the... It's the... Mantis is the one with the, the, the... Yeah, the antenna that can, like, read people's minds and stuff in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Anyways... She's kind of a big deal. She's going to be in the next couple of Mission Impossible movies, too, it looks like. Anyways, she's a big deal. So it's kind of funny that, you know, there's this movie that was made last year that she's, like, in in a throwaway role that's on screen for maybe ten seconds. And so I'm going to say it's the worst performance simply because why would you do this and not even be right, be able to be Well, noticed? Tilda Swinton's so, actually in this movie, too, so I guess another Oscar. I saw that, too. Tilda Swinton is in this. Uh, yeah, there are a couple names that I was like, really? But, yeah. All right, Zach, what do you got? Okay, so I'm going with Doc Rivers as the worst performance in this movie because <laughs> I feel like his halftime speech has a very little affect in his voice. And um, it just, it, it's really distracting and it's kind of unnecessary for the movie. In fact, it kind of takes away the mystical element of the, uh, of the stone. Um, it's not like uh, Doc Rivers is really encouraging KG that much. Apparently he recorded his voice specifically for this movie. Um, and uh, yeah, it, uh, it's kind of wasted, unfortunately. But, you know, it's only a small part of the movie. He's like, you gotta be dialed in. Look at KG. <laughs> Go over there looking at a rock <laughs> in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it would have been great if uh, if they had uh, actually taken like audio from an actual halftime speech he had given and used that in that in that scene. That would have been awesome. This would be more show off editing. <laughs> still, still show off. Yes, yeah, yeah. So according to right. according to ESPN, Zach, Zach Lowe, Doc Rivers recorded his voiceover during uh, Kawhi Leonard's recruitment to the Clippers. But I don't know what that means. I don't know if it was like his recruitment speech or whether it was during that time. But yeah, the more you know. Yeah, the, the more you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, next, we have uh, the Big Tim Award given to the, the favorite minor character in the film. Uh, I'm going first. I'm going with Gooey, played by Judd Hirsch. Um, that poor guy. I mean, he, he's... You, you kind of get the idea that he's similar to Arno, but he hasn't yet been burned by Howard as badly, so he just is willing to go along with it, and then ends up having to pay $190,000 for a gem that he doesn't want, that he's trying to get rid of, and yeah. So, uh, so yeah. He was getting 38 k back on that <laughs> investment, though. <laughs> yeah, he was. It's kind of crazy. So, uh, yep. So, I'm, go I'm going Judd Hirsch, and it's just great to see him and stuff. Uh, Todd, who do you got? Uh, I have... Oh, no, wait, no, I'm going to Zach first. Zach next. Zach was supposed to be next, sorry. That's okay. I feel bad for Judd Hirsch in this movie. Like, he gets roped into doing it. You know, he was not expecting to have to do that all day. And, um, yeah, he just... I don't know. Like, there are a lot of characters I kind of feel bad for in this movie, and Gooey is definitely one of them. You know, he, he doesn't like Arno much, and, 
he's just sort of sad. Like, that was one of the things in the second viewing I noticed more in the first viewing. For the first viewing, he's, like, just sort of a side character. But the second viewing, he's, like, sort of a really sad, depressed character. So uh, it's a good performance, though. Um, my Big Tim favorite uh, minor character word is an obvious one. Already mentioned, it is Wayne Diamond as the high roller who uh, meets the lovely Julia on a helicopter and then keeps... Three the- times in one day! Three times in one day! <laughs> and, uh, okay, so maybe you guys will get this reference. Doesn't he look like the guy in Ocean's Eleven who spots Carl Reiner at the casino? And he's like, hey, Saul, it's Bucky! Remember me from Saratoga! And he takes off his glasses... <laughs> I was, I was thinking hoping... uh, he reminded me of one of like a, one of the fake Elvises in Honeymoon in Vegas, which I mean, obviously he looks like a sideshow in Vegas. <laughs> I also don't want to step into another category. He he really makes a solid play for MVP of this movie because my God, imagine if he wasn't there to to have Julia come up to his place, she would have easily been spe- been seen by those goons. Like he he plays an integral role in this movie, and he's awesome, man. He, also, I think the winner of who would Nicolas Cage uh, play in this movie? Yeah, that's a good call too. That's a good call too. All right, Todd, who do you got? Uh, Sorry for interrupting you. I have two. Uh, my, the first one I, I thought of was uh, the uh, was Roman, who is like Howard's like the guy that's in his office all the time, who like cleans the stuff, because he just like sits there the whole one. time and takes in everything that's going on, all the confrontations, and he tries to fix the door, and he can't even do that right. And the only time he opens his mouth is when Damani is like trying to poison the fishes, which I mean I I think that's just kind of awesome. He, he's a great character, and I want to know how he got that job. Number one. And my other one is the Bronsteins, who are the uh, the pawn shop guys, because they they know Howard and they know how to make money. So uh, the the one guy he actually kind of cares about it, like about him. He has like no risk that he's taking from Howard, but he's making money from him just because he knows that he's eventually going to come back for these rings. Like it, that's a great character, and that's a character that should have been like a throwaway. But I, I feel like that guy has enough charisma that he, he's one of my, my my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, that's a good call, too. There's so many uh, great gonna, minor characters in this movie. Like, it, it's a uh, who's who of minor characters. Yeah, I was just going to throw an honorable mention to Mike Francesa. Yes, Gary. He, he's perfect Gary. as the as the bookie. Gary the bookie. You spoke to Gary? <laughs> uh, KG this, KG that. What do you know? All right, and I was also uh, I was also going to add to um, Haley Gates as the receptionist at Adley's. I mentioned her when I first reviewed the movie. That's how, that's how much she she stuck out to me. But I love how she's like, "Can you keep your voice down?" And um, she's like so pissed off at Adam Sandler, and yet she wants to maintain professionalism in this environment. It's like a great like like a, a mom screaming at a child in a grocery store, but she can't really scream type performance, and uh, she's awesome in that role. And how awesome is it that the voice on the other end of the, of the line in those scenes is Tilda Swinton? I mean, that's just perfect. Yeah, I mean, and you, could, you could definitely tell that when you know that, but, like, the first time I had no idea that was Tilda Swinton, but then... Me neither. That's all I could hear now that, I, now that I had known that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Zach, you're next on this one. Best scene. What's the best scene in this movie? Whew! best scene in this movie uh well there are a lot to choose from but i think the scene i'm gonna go with is the scene when howard is accosted at the school play by arno and his goons um what's what's the 
Phil, Phil and Nico, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's that scene is awesome because they cancel the bet. And it's not just the heartbreak of getting kidnapped and having his t- clothes torn off and being thrown in the trunk. I think Adam Sandler would be okay with that. I think it's the fact that they canceled the bet that is the biggest slap in the face. And uh, I love how he calls his wife from the trunk. And Adina Menzel's, I mean, she has a lot of great facial expressions in this movie. But when she looks at him in the car, uh, that is a great facial expression. That scene works on so many levels. And uh, it's just one of many, many awesome moments in this movie. Yeah, that's another one of my honorable mentions for best minor character is Adina Menzel. She's awesome in this. Yeah, it's the best. Adam Sandler gives the best naked trunk performance since Ken Jeong in uh, uh, The Hangover. The only, the only thing that was missing was the the uh, Tarantino typical, you know, shot from the point of view of the of the uh, of the trunk when they open it. Yes, so that's all that scene was missing. Yes, exactly. All right, Todd, best scene. Well, the the thing with that canceled bet, honestly, is that that was a six way parlay, and if you do the math, that's a that's a forty five to one that he was getting on that, and he had forty k on that, so that's a, what, about one point eight million that he was losing there, and that's why he was so upset. I I'm thinking careless about being naked. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> Take my clothes. You just cost me one point eight. Um. The most stressful scene for me, which is maybe my most scene, my, my my favorite scene, is the. Uh, when Howard is uh, is talking on the phone to like five different people, and then KG and Damani show up because it is just—I mean, there there is so much yelling in that scene. It's like Glengarry Glen Ross or something like that. Like he's talking to Julie on the phone, then he's talking to Tilda Swinton at the auction, and then he's talking to Latasha Neone at the uh, at the the Celtics headquarters, and then he's talking to his doctor about his colon cancer. I, and then and then KG and Damani get get stuck in the get stuck at the door. I mean th- that is like the most claustrophobic scene I have ever seen, and it it it's something that I <laughs> that I that I can't ever forget. I'm the, like when I'm watching that, I'm like sweating just because it makes me so nervous, and I love I love that feeling, and I don't I don't know any other director that could do that. <laughs> yeah, that that's a that's a great call too. That's a great scene. Um, I thought the uh, I thought the obvious answer for this was was the scene where it, with um, Howard and KG sitting down at his desk near the end, and and just watching his slow like like it's at the for the first time in the entire movie you look at it and say Howard's got a way out of this. There's actually a light at the end of the tunnel. Everything's gonna work out, and then you see him get in his own way, and and I I mean that is the most stressful scene of just. But you see, oh, his, no, no, no. But you see him too because he he's got he's got that he he has his way out, but he's not going to make any money off of that like seventeen months of of commitment that he had. He's going to make like twenty grand after he pays back, uh, Gooey, and a, after after the Vig and and after after uh, like Stanfield's um thing, you know. I don't know. But that's not that's not why he's doing it though. He's doing it because he can't help himself. He's doing it because yeah. he see he sees the bet. And 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 you you can't help but just sit there and go no 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 and you that's all you can say and he does it anyways but uh so there's that the other scene I was gonna say was and that is the best scene by the way yeah yeah and and so the scene I was gonna say because I thought you were gonna say that scene was um the scene um where um between Howard and 
and Dina. Uh, I think it's at Passover when uh, when Dina tries on her old prom dress and it still fits, and they have the little one on one there. Not prom, bat yeah, yeah. mitzvah. Oh, bat mitzvah. Yeah, that's what it is. And uh, and she um, and Howard's talking to her like, I, you know, okay, I want you back. Everything's forgiven. We're good to go. And he has no idea how much of a joke he is to the rest of his family. And and in that scene where he's he's just saying, "Okay, yeah, we're back to we're back to normal," and she literally laughs in his face and just tells him to get out. I mean, that is it's such a great scene. I mean, because he is like, "Okay, this is how it works. I say this, you say this. We're back together. Everything's good." And she just laughs in his face and says, you're a joke and you're the worst person I, I've ever met. And um, that's such a great scene, played by two great actors in that moment. The way you describe that scene, uh, it almost seems like a scene in My Cousin Vinny, which makes me think that Joe Pesci could have been a pretty awesome Howard. <laughs> oh, that's a good call. You know, a lot of people I can see that. will talk about Julia Fox, maybe sh- should have gotten Best Supporting Actress, but Adina Menzel... In that scene, have you ever seen someone look as just uh, completely angry at another person in real life or in a movie? The only other scene in a movie I can think of is when the bride looks at uh, Bud when she's about to get buried alive and killed the volume two. Like that level of hatred is, I I don't think I've ever actually seen it in real life. It's amazing uh, acting. It, it's it's great, yeah. Oh, and this her, bitch her is facial mad. expressions are awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her face, like you said before, her facial expressions are what make her part awesome. The the other ones okay. I had for best scene were the the, the whole sequence with the weekend. I, I think that's an that's an awesome mm-hmm. scene and another very very claustrophobic stressful scene. And the but the the one that I was thinking about mentioning was one right after the auction, where he's like bargaining with Gooey and then he gets like a forearm to the throat. And then he's like chasing them down the sidewalk and gets thrown in the fountain. Like that is a great sequence of like four or five minutes that that I like the first time I saw it, I had no idea what was going to happen, but I was nervous. That's a good call. All right, biggest stick man. Uh, let's see here, Todd, you're first. Well, I mean, it's hard not to go with the weekend. I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <he> was- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was like doing blow and about to like bang Julia Fox in the bathroom. I, I mean, I guess I would probably have to go with that. There's only like one other answer, but I guess I mean he's the easy answer, right? <laughs> that, that I would say that that is the easy answer. Yes. Um, Zach, you're next. Yeah, I, I, I don't have another answer. I tried really <laughs> hard to think of another answer. There really isn't one. It's got to be the weekend. Oh, did who was your uh, other yeah. person, Todd? Uh, well, well, KG, just because I, I mean, he, like, he he doesn't have a girlfriend, obviously, but like he obviously he already had flirted and like a uh, with a uh, with a uh, Julia, and I don't know, he's I mean he was probably pretty charming before Howard showed up that day. I I, I think that, that things could have gone a little differently. What do you think? Yeah, Derek? I got nothing. I think uh, it's generous to call that flirting, but okay. We didn't see uh, when, gonna, what, what happened with, that, that, uh, that actually came up though before Howard got there. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with uh, with the high roller played by Wayne Diamond. <laughs> yes, he has no. He said he has nobody to spend any <laughs> time with. 
Yeah, yeah. He's like yeah. the he's no, the worst yeah. stick. He's the worst. He's such a bad stick man that he might actually he's be a, a good stick man. He's the worst. He has the hot girl come up to his room. He goes, I, "You can watch the <laughs> yes. game. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go take, take a shower." shower. <laughs> <laughs> and he, get, he wants her to figure out how to turn on the TV with his iPad, probably because he can't figure it out himself. <laughs> The, he might take the take the cake as the worst stick man. I mean, I think honestly, he, is. he even says that in the helicopter. <laughs> He's like, I do, I made you know five million dollars last year, but I have no one to spend it with. Uh, if he had a, if he had a name in this movie, we should change the name of the award from Big Tim to whoever this guy is, because I could talk about him for two hours. We could just, but could, I, I don't think he has the, a name. The high, the Big Tim High Roller Award. The Big Tim High Roller. That's like what it. it is now. The Big Tim High Roller. I love it. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, biggest douchebag. What do you think, Terry? You're first. Yeah, go up, go Terry. Oh gosh, I'm first. Okay. Um, I mean, it's hard not to go with Howard. I mean, he, he's, he's double crossing everybody he comes in contact with. He has so many lies going. Who knows? I mean. All you need to know about how, how big of a douchebag he is is how he completely liquidates his entire stock of of, uh, of Damani's watches just to try and get everybody else off of his back. Um, to the point that Damani's so upset he kills his fish. But um, but I, I think Howard's the easiest answer here for, for biggest douchebag. He's a... Uh, and and that's what puts him in his in the situation he's in is how horrible he treats everybody else. He's definitely a douchebag, but there are bigger there are bigger douches in this movie. Okay, then who who do you got? My answer is John Amos, aka the neighbor from Thirty Three E, who doesn't let Howard's son go to the bathroom in his apartment. That's a pretty douchey thing to do. That's a good call. Was, and the other name was like, is it number one or number two? <laughs> any lies. Like, yeah, any lies. But any then, lies! Uh, yeah, and then he randomly tells the kid that Adam Sandler has a really hot girlfriend, you know, living in that apartment. <laughs> Todd, who's your douchebag? Uh, I, I mean, I'll go with Phil, because, I mean, he's an asshole. Well, yeah. He gets into a fight with KG's bodyguards, which is never a smart idea. And, I mean, he can't even just take a win, so he robs the place and kills Arno and Howard. I don't know. I mean, yes, he's a douche. I that's the, that's the right answer. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that's sort of the whole. Right. Po- that's sort of the whole point in the movie, in a way, is that like again, watching this movie a second time, like I really connected with the Arno character, and Arno, it, Arno is. It seems like he's genuinely happy for Howard at the end of the movie that he hit on the parlay. Like he doesn't necessarily smile or jump for joy, but there is in no universe does he want to kill Howard at the end of the movie. In no way does he expect uh, Phil to do that. And and so the movie is not just a tragedy of Howard, but I, in some ways, it's also a tragedy of Arno. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it, when it comes down to it, Arno's family. Right. He he all this is not necessarily for him to get his money, it's for him to give Howard a reality check. He's like almost I mean he's kind of family. He's like he's what Dina's sister's husband. I mean, that I mean that that's that's almost not family. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean he he's that family But still, events. I mean yeah. with Yeah, with with his with his um as big of a family that as they have and you know how much they do together. 
Well, they it, see each other often. It, and it's hard to think of Arno as any kind of villain or douchebag because he's kind of disliked by the family. He's sort of a dark black sheep, right? Like, even in that scene when they're all watching the basketball game and some, the scene where someone randomly says, we got to bring back Jeremy Lin. I love that line. Um, but Arno's kind of like sitting on the side and Gooey later says that, you know, imagine having him as a son-in-law. Like, no one likes Arno. He's kind of cast out. I feel kind of bad for the guy. That thing about Jeremy Lane actually ages really well because they shit on James Dolan. <laughs> like in the next line. <laughs> That's a good call. That's a good call. Well, I mean, it wasn't like it was filmed in 2012. I mean, they just made it. So <laughs> it was easy to throw in a line like that that ages well. All right. Uh, let's see here. Any flaws? Anything? I mean, it's hard for something to be outdated considering it was just made. But um, any flaws that you guys saw? Yeah, I have a few things to mention. Go for it, Tom. Okay, one, the most glaring uh, flaw is that there are no sports books outside of Nevada in 2012. Not at the Mohegan Sun or anywhere else. So, that is one problem. They wouldn't need to set the movie somewhere else. Uh, which they couldn't have done because it was in New York. Uh, also, you can't parlay the opening tip with anything. You can't even parlay the like the coin toss in the Super Bowl with anything. I, I mean, if you're getting minus 110, there's no way a bookie's going to take on a 50% like... Uh, like a proposition onto onto a parlay just to boost the odds like that that's ridiculous uh another one i have is the guys who are hounding howard on the street uh about watches it seemed like it taken a little bit too far like what what's the story with that guy like and, and what about the guy who wants the michael jackson necklace back like where do these guys come from like i mean they're just like randomly showing up and then you just like shoves them away but they don't really come back i, I think that was a little odd and, uh, yeah, I saw I saw yeah. someone post on Twitter the random brother or the random like twin brothers or something that are hounding Howard. They said, uh, "I'm going to tell my kids that these were the Safdie brothers." <laughs> <laughs> they probably wanted to play that role. They they feel like the twin brothers from the the Truman Show that shoved Truman next to the camera so that the camera can can see. Oh, yes. there you go. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I have a couple more. These are more like conspiracy theories, kind of. So he waited 17 months for to find this opal. But he has to make this one particular auction. Like, he didn't know that this auction was coming, or he didn't know that the Opal was coming, like, that day or that week or even that year. He waited 17 months for this thing. It just randomly shows up. But this one auction is so important. Why didn't you just go to the next one? Why, did, why, did, why, does, it have, why does he have to get over this one thing? It, it may, I don't know. Because he has to pay back Arno. Yeah, but he's, had to, but he's been dodging him for 17 months. I mean, he, he borrowed 100K, you know? Yeah, and and that's another thing. Okay, so he owes him a hundred thousand, and he takes his watch, which is another twenty thousand, and then he t he stops the bet and takes the money from Gary. That's forty thousand more. So he only owes him forty thousand dollars, which isn't all that much for this kind of uh, scenario. But unless he's like really tightening the screws on like the uh, the interest that he owes him, then then what? I mean, why doesn't he just pawn another couple watches and get forty thousand dollars more? Take get that issue out of his life that's threatening his life. And then just, like, yeah. deal with, like, uh, you know, what is it, Damani later, you know? I, it, wasn't cause he, I mean, wasn't cause the watch really, that they took, though, the watch they took, I think, wasn't that a Damani watch, which isn't actually worth $20,000, it's a fake. Weren't all of Damani's watches fake? I mean, yeah, that, that's, what, that's that what they the say. the impression. Yeah. But, I mean, either way, they, they already they already took 40000 from him, so it doesn't owe him 100000 more at all at any point during the movie, but they're, they're still treating it like... Like he owes him at least like well over half of what he's gonna make on this on on the opal. It, it just it seems a, a little a little much to uh, to go kill somebody for forty thousand dollars. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Well, but but you got to think though. By that point, it's not about the 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 actual number. It's just about the frustration, the seventeen months of bullshit that they have to endure. I mean, the whole last sequence of the movie is sort of a metaphor for all the shit that they have to take from Howard. I mean, I think it's much more about ego and hubris than it is about getting you know their money back. And I think the last hour of the movie is also about how Phil's pissed off. Ar- Arno doesn't really care at that point. Phil needs to well, well, Phil mess like, this guy like up. Like Phil, Phil's Boston mob, isn't that what they're kind of saying? Like, isn't that that guy? That that guy next to Doc, isn't that one of your guys? You know, like whatever. It's like I mean, I, I think he knew he he knew like he's like I just got held hostage for three hours. Like I have to kill this guy. Like there's no way of there's no way I'm walking out of here without killing this guy because I have to. Yeah, no paycheck is worth this. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the obvious flaw, or it's obvious to me because I've heard it before, um, and uh, I'm going to credit uh, Adnan Verk on the uh, Cinephile podcast for coming up with this one, is the fact that the first game he's watching where he's got to go put his kid to bed, um, he, he comes back in, and Dina's got the channel on something else, and he says, turn it to ESPN, please, so we can watch the rest of the game. When it's obvious that game is on TNT. I mean, it's Kevin Harlan. All the <laughs> graphics say TNT on it. Um, and he keeps on saying, turn it to ESPN. The game's on ESPN. Turn it to ESPN so I can watch the rest of the game. And the game's on TNT. So if you listen to Adnan's podcast where he talks about Uncut Gems, he actually met the Safdie brothers and told them that. And said, is there a reason you said ESPN? Or what, was he just like... Well, are, are you saying he was just, like, so crazed about this bet that he needed to watch? He just said, turn it to the... I mean, it's ESPN. I don't care. Turn it to the sports. Uh, or or did you actually get this wrong? And they're like, wait, what? What are you saying? And they, like, had to pull it up. on. They had the, a copy of the movie on their phone. And the Safdie brothers had to pull it up right there in front of Adnan to look and go, holy crap, we just made that mistake. How did we make that mistake? And so, um, yeah, Adnan completely broke a uh, a flaw in this movie to the Safdie wow. brothers. That uh, that yeah, but that game was on TNT. They have to know that there were no sports books in 2012, though, right? They have to know that. Uh, you would think so. You would think so. So the other thing I really want to know—I don't know if this is a flaw, but I really want to know. Okay, he's got all this security of like the double buzzer system to get into the shop. Um, how does? He get into his shop to, like, because there was that one night he slept in his shop. How does he get into a shop after hours? I mean, if this is, if it's like this crazy buzzer system where, like, they have to buzz him in if he's outside the shop. How does he actually get in when it's not, when no one else is inside? So, yeah, someone I have no would idea. have to be in there 24-7 and... <laughs> No. Yeah. yeah, maybe he, that, that... maybe he goes through JJ's shop and goes through the window like uh, when he gives the money off. <laughs> he climbs across the. But window. then, like, how does yeah, how does it open? Pulls a Harold I, Lloyd. Yeah, this is. I, I was I was wanting to see what how this would happen and and because uh, I'm like, oh, he's gonna go sleep in the shop. How does he get in? I want to see how he gets in. And then it cuts and he's in his office already pulling out the blanket. And I'm like, no, I want to see how you get in. There's got to so be a back door into like the offices, right? I mean, you would think, right? You would think so, but they uh, it didn't look like it. That thing was pretty small. Yeah. Anyways, that was That's that was my one though. thing. Zach, did you have did you have anything? Yeah, I had a few conspiracies. Um, first question was so assuming that they didn't cancel the six way parlay, is there any way that Mike Francesca can pay out? Like that feels like a, a 
fairly big amount of money. So I, I feel like is that like bookie, kills I bet, a, I bet an underground is. New York bookie. I don't know. I think that kills him. I think so too. What did you say? He's making one point four million on a forty thousand dollar bet. Yeah, one one point eight. But I mean, yeah, he. But he, I mean, he he obviously. I mean, he he put lightning points on that too. Like, there's. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if he's willing to do all of that stuff, I'm sure he's got a pretty big bankroll. Well, and apparently Gary is a restaurateur, and maybe he just, you know, it, that's that's maybe where he launders all of his money or something like that. So it's it's credible, but I think it's it's fortuitous that the bet gets canceled. I think Gary could maybe be an MVP candidate for for that reason alone. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think Gary takes the bet unless he knows he can pay it out. That's that's even possible. though he thinks it's the stupidest bet ever. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what it is. I, that's the stupidest bet I've ever heard. I disagree, Gary. I disagree. Well, see, but no, but his me- first bet was stupider with the twenty thousand because that one he took like multiple sides of the same game. Like in this one, he's just like, I'm going all Celtics. But the first one, he's like, I'm taking the Sixers, and he's like, I'm taking the Oklahoma City Lakers over, but I'm taking the Kobe under. Like that, none of that makes sense. Yeah, that was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> Can we compare Howard's six-way parlay to your six-way parlay when you were in Vegas, Terry? How did how did that turn out for you? <laughs> Oh, it was just a, it was a three-way parlay, and I think it is so much more impressive to miss every part of your three-way parlay as it is to make every part of your three-way parlay. So I that's what I'm going with. I missed all three parts of it. Let's see. I I, I bet. Let's see. I bet. What was it? I bet? Uh, Auburn over Florida. I bet Georgia State over somebody, and I bet Portland State over somebody in a three-way parlay. And all of them, all of them lost. All of them lost. Like I, I think you should get like half payback for what you bet if you miss all three parts of a parlay. You get a bad beat payout for having a bad bet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> call call it a, mer- a mercy payout. It's like you're so bad at this. We'll give you twenty bucks back so you can figure this out again. <laughs> That'll be ours in a little while. Don't worry. <laughs> Everyone knows to put money on the powerhouse Portland State basketball team. That was a great call. Yeah, Rhode Island yeah. was our was our key. <laughs> um, okay, so and then I had a big conspiracy theory. This this is on the level of Todd. So I was thinking about this watching the movie again, and I really think maybe this coincides with the LVP. But I really think that the biggest person to blame in this movie is not uh, Arno or Phil, but it's really Oscar the appraiser, because if Oscar the appraiser does not appraise the stone lower than what Adam Sandler thinks. Let's say that he gives it the appraisal that Adam Sandler expects, you know, in the $200,000 range. Then KG goes to the auction house, he buys the rock, gives the money to Adam Sandler, who then, because Arno and Phil are both at the auction house, he just hands the money off to them and he never dies. So Oscar's appraisal, his lowball, is the reason that Howard dies in this movie. Howard never makes that bet on the Celtics. I'm okay if, to go with that. If, yeah, uh, if, yeah. That really ruined everything. It did. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's all Tilda Swinton's fault. They had all weekend to make that appraisal, you know? You could have just gone right. to the next auction or gone to a different auction a year. I mean, <laughs> right? Well, yeah. apparently after 17 months, they Arno and Phil need their money today. All right. I've got one more question about this. What does Julia do with the money? What do you think Julia does with the money? That's a great question. She's Mr. Pink. You think so? 
Yeah, I mean, wh where is she going to go? She doesn't even have a, f a flight now. He he died right before he was going to book a flight for her. So now she's stuck in, what was it, New Hampshire? The, I, Connecticut. I don't know. Connecticut? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, what's she going to do? She's probably going to go back to that guy. Or, uh, I don't know. <laughs> the high roller. I think she runs off with the weekend. <laughs> she has to go. Is, find is there again. a world where she like leaves half the money with uh, with Dina? Never. I don't think. Have they ever met? I don't know, but I mean, once you find out everything that's gone down, do you? I mean, so that leads to another question: Does does Julia really love Howard? Like. Do you think she has absolutely. honest, authentic feelings for him? Like, like uh, upward mobility with him or anything like that. I, I think she, I think she actually does. Is she, I mean, she got a tattoo. <laughs> of course, Terry. What do you think? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. Like Todd said, there, there's nothing for her to really gain from, from that, and she's just, she's young and, and, you know, crazy, stupid love. So I agree. I agree with both your positions. Watching this movie with my wife last night, though, she said there is no way that Julia actually loves Howard. She's only in it for the perks, so she doesn't have to go to work. She can get her smoothies and her outfits and doesn't have to pay for her apartment. And she just kind of was in it for the money all along. I thought that was a very interesting female perspective. I wonder if maybe women who, I mean, not to overgeneralize, but I wonder if women watching this movie maybe see her character as, as maybe more, um, I don't know, manipulative. But she, That's a good but point. he's broke. Like, she, there's no money. <laughs> there's no money in it. Well, clearly he's not broke. He's 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 paying for her apartment, and she doesn't have to go into work, and she's left carrying his you know millions of dollars at the end of the movie. And she does work. Sometimes, at ten thirty <laughs> in the morning, when she feels like it. You're in a hurry to get here, and he knocks the smoothie out of her hand. <laughs> okay. I can see yeah. that one. Alright. Okay. LVP MVP. Uh, Todd, you're first. So my LVP is Damani. Because he he screws everything up. He abandons Howard in Philly. He he just like... Uh, I, I don't know. I, he, he poisons the fishes. He acts like... It, all the time he's just like like feeding howard lines and then he never delivers he never has the opal when he says he does and it, like all of that just because he wants to be part of you know kg's crew he completely screws he completely screws up the whole situation and i, I think it's because he's sort of like an insecure asshole but he wants to he wants to be a hard ass at the same time i think damani is the lvp I think Damani is what happens when howard has to work with someone that has the same moral character as he does yeah, I don't know how they I don't know how they put up with each other on a daily basis. Yeah, I don't know. Did you know that John David Washington read for that role too? Oh, that'd be interesting. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have been Lakeith Stanfield. No, like John David Washington just just feels too clean cut for a role like that. Like I mean, like Damani, like he sells an NBA player to come to this like ratty like like a diamond shop like how, why can't he just sell like watches on the street you you'd, i feel like that'd be a way easier way to do it do it but he refuses i don't know 
Another flaw I wanted to mention was um, we never see Howard get on the bus from Philadelphia back to New York to watch his daughters play. I would have loved to have seen that scene. I wonder if they actually, if that was part of the script, but that felt like really abrupt and I would have loved to have seen Howard on a bus. I don't know how that actually happened because he said, he said Damani put him on a bus. Yeah. So like, does that mean what, that how... Damani came out of practice and dragged his ass to a bus stop? No, I feel like he hadn't talked to him since he, uh, since he left him, but yeah, it's, it's almost like he got thrown out of there and they put him on a bus. <laughs> <laughs> he told security to throw him out. Oh, see, that would have made a great sequence. Imagine him yelling at those NBA security guards. That would have been awesome. Maybe it's in the uh, unrated director's cut. There we go. All right, I'm going to go next. My LVP, I'm going to go Arno uh, because I think he it takes him way too long to realize he is in way over his head by hiring Phil. And, like, he, he's like, I, I need my money. Well, what do you do to get your money back? Well, you hire some muscle to rough him up a little bit. And then once he realizes that Phil is a monster, it's too late. And and if he would have just kept going with, well, honestly, if he would have kept going just because it was family, I don't know if he would have ever gotten his money because Howard is pathological. But, um, but no, Arno's my, my LVP because if he would have just calmed down a little bit and not hired, you know, a criminal psychopath to, uh, to try and handle the situation for him. Everything would have gone a lot differently. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's hard to argue with. The more and more you, you describe Arno Terry, the more and more your Alan Arkin casting is just perfect. I, I think it is. Yeah. Like, like this would have been like three years after Glenn Gary. Gestapo tactics. Now he's using the Gestapo tactics. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Zach, what do you have? All right, well, originally my LVP was the bald guy who uh, gives um, Howard his Michael Jackson necklace and Howard uh, pawns it because who has a Michael Jackson necklace? I mean, at the, at, you know, it's, even in 2012, it's just pretty inexcusable. But I'm, I'm going to change it at the last minute. I'm going to go with the Academy Awards because, you know what, they suck. And not only do they suck, you know, in a year where Joker got the most Oscar nominations and, and Joaquin Phoenix's performance as Joker beat out, uh, you know, um, Adam Sandler. But imagine an alternate universe where the Academy Awards let you actually gamble on them. First of all, you know, Todd would be probably the wealthiest person in America at, at this point. And imagine an alternate universe where this movie isn't about NBA betting, but about Oscar betting and Howard betting on the 2012 Oscars and having a hunch that Argo would win Best Picture and hitting that bet at the end of the movie. Man, that would have been just, you know, a a euphoric uh, release. Starring Alan Arkin. There we go. It all comes full circle. I like it. You you know he would have parlayed it with Alan Arkin winning supporting actor though. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and what would be what would be the Oscar equivalent to betting on the opening tip? I don't even know. <laughs> to, to how long the opening monologue is or something? Yeah. <laughs> oh, op- opening the show with a musical number. <laughs> yes or no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yes or no. Does, does the show open with a musical number? Does the host give a musical number in the monologue? Can you parlay that with how many Oscars, like, Lincoln's gonna win? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alright. 
Uh, Todd, MVP. I'm going with Ronald Bronstein because he is the writing slash editing slash acting partner of the, the Safdie brothers. And uh, they even named the pawn shop guys after him because he's so awesome in Daddy Long Legs. And uh, I don't know. I mean, to come up with that storyline, to cast Adam Sandler in that part, I mean, the, the movie wouldn't be the same if, uh, if that crew of people wouldn't have come together. And I feel like Ronald Bronstein is, I mean, he's like, 15 years older than those guys so i mean he had to be one of the uh one of the main decision makers in that crew nice nice uh my mvp i'm going kevin garnett um i mean he he's the whole thing that makes the whole makes the makes the whole story happen i mean if he doesn't come into the shop if he doesn't get obsessed with his opal if he doesn't think that this black opal has power to help him play better um, I mean, the, this whole thing doesn't happen. I mean, that's what makes this whole story happen, is the fact that, that you've got this NBA player that is tying his success in a playoff series. By the way, like, at this point, like a 20-year pro, tying his, <laughs> right. tying, tying his success in a single playoff series to the fact that he holds this rock. Um, yeah, I, I think he, and he's just amazing in the movie. And, uh, and, and like I said before, to have this playoff series that so perfectly fits into the story that they want to tell, I mean, it, yeah, he's the MVP. Yeah, his first scene also might be the best scene, because he's like, like, he, he's like not buying the story about the Ethiopian Jews and all that stuff, and then he's, and then he looks at the rock, he's like, why are there so many colors? What the, what is this thing? <laughs> it's like, it's like he was already entranced <laughs> just by looking at him once, like, what the hell? <laughs> Yeah, he liked that a whole lot more than the gremlin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right, Zach, your MVP. I think the MVPs of this movie are clearly the Safdie brothers. You know, um, they are uh, they are not homeless rabbis. They're the Safdie brothers. And, like, they're the Safdie brothers. You know, they talked in, in the interview I was listening to, like, Benny talked about how, like, um, on their earlier movies, like Daddy Longlegs, like, he would actually uh, operate the boom mic, and he loved doing audio. Like, he do he's done, like, literally every job on a film set for their movies. Like, he actually constructed one of their sets one of their early for one of their early student films. And he would have done the sound for this movie, too, except um, they had to do, like, union stuff, and they had to go into contracts. Anyway, these guys have been, like, not just making movies, but immersing themselves in film and film culture and film production for the last 10 years and again the, the idea that this script was there for 10 years they asked Adam Sandler to do it Josh Safdie said like they didn't even when they asked Adam Sandler to do it like in the early 2010s they didn't they hadn't earned the right to ask Adam Sandler yet because they you know they just weren't accomplished enough and the fact that they sat on it but they, you know they 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 molded it and they made it into something wonderful and beautiful um you know what they are they're they're awesome and uh yeah, this is this is the crowning the crowning maybe the crowning achievement of American cinema of the of the twenty tens. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. It, yeah, it's hard to argue with the Safety brothers. Okay, let's wrap this thing up. Quote of the daytime. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Uh Zach, you gotta go first. All right, well, my quote comes from KG in his post-game speech at the end of this movie. I was going to do that. 
Oh, okay, sorry, Tosh. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> he said, all the dues and everything that I put into this, you wouldn't think that I would show up to a game seven? Yeah, that's a joke. And, you know, I mean, KG could also make a pretty serious contender for biggest douchebag in this movie for any number of reasons. But then he ends the interview by saying, it's not down to one guy, so I know all we share that, uh, I know we all share that responsibility. We did a good job, you know? In the end, I felt like it was just me and The Rock and nothing else. And that's a perfect way to characterize this podcast, too. Just me and The Rock. Nice, nice. The Rock with that double right. meaning. Yes, yes. All right, well, I'll let Todd come up with another uh, another quote <laughs> Sorry, while Todd. I give mine. Uh, my quote is from Palm Springs, and I think this also describes this podcast very well. Uh, it comes near the end, and uh, Sarah says this. She says, uh, that was a grammatical nightmare. <laughs> also, an emphatic period is an exclamation point. <laughs> that is a great line you gotta get the whole context of that scene but that's a great line yeah it's a great line an emphatic period is just an exclamation point <laughs> and that you know when I think about this podcast sometimes I think it's a grammatical nightmare <laughs> especially near the end after we're you know a couple drinks in Todd what do you got okay Howard Ratner says which d- describes like why I love uh, gambling on sports. He says, "This is the beauty of betting. I'm pulling for the Celtics, a Knicks fan. If the 12 year old version of saw me, he'd be like, what the f-? <laughs> And that's exactly the way I why I love sports betting. <laughs> you can use your hatred of a team and make money off of it. I like it. I like it. All right, and with that. We're going to bring this podcast to a close. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, again, you can find us iTunes, uh, Apple Podcast, uh, Stitcher, uh, Spotify. Uh, we'll be back at you next week with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.